Summer is upon us, and whatever you have going on, a vacation, a staycation, a summer wedding, well, Macy's has you covered. If you need summer dresses, matching sets, volume sleeve tops, wedges, straw-crafted bags, I mean, really, they have what you need head to toe. I'm talking Levi's, Dolce Vita, Lacoste, and more. So shop summer must-haves at Macy's. Go to Macy's.com slash style. Again, that's Macy's.com slash style. Host Nora McInerney is back for season two of The Head Start, Embracing the Journey, a podcast from Ruby Studio and AbbVie. In each episode, Nora has real conversations with real people living with chronic migraine to see how they took action to understand this disease. So jump into the conversation for season two, a show that creates a little more space for empathy and understanding in such a complicated world. There shouldn't be so much hesitation around asking questions and asking for help. So don't wait. Join the Head Start Embracing the Journey and learn a little more about life with chronic migraine. What kind of programs does this school have? How are the test scores? How many kids to a classroom? Homes.com knows that these are all the things that you ask when you're home shopping as a parent. That's why each listing on Homes.com includes extensive reports on local schools, including photos, parent reviews, test scores, student-teacher ratio, school rankings, and more. The information is from multiple trusted sources and curated by Homes.com's dedicated in-house research team. It's all so you can make the right decision for your family. Homes.com. We've done your homework. In every pair of Tacova's boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. Tacova's boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they're going to last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tacova store, where you're going to be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. So come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. Visit tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. And don't go gently, y'all. I'm Amy, that's Lisa, and we're just two girls that want to have a conversation with you. Dear 16-year-old Andrea. Hey, gorgeous. Dear younger Lauren. Each episode is stories from people. I would deprive myself, weigh myself obsessively. Because I was eating healthy, I couldn't understand that I had a problem with food. Losing my period scared me the most. My story starts when I was around seven. That's when I started to hate my body. Body image is like our inner picture of our outer self. Healthy behaviors play a much bigger role in our health than the actual number on the scales. Internal dialogue can be so powerful and often it's super negative and critical in a way that we wouldn't talk to other people that we care about. When you start to share your story, that gives other people the courage to share theirs. I know you would be proud now of how far you have come in your relationship to food, exercise, and to yourself. I felt freedom. I've gained relationships. I've found my true sense of self-worth. There's one thing I need you to take away from this. You're going to be okay. Life without disordered eating outweighs everything. You're listening to episode two of Outweigh. In this series, we will be discussing eating disorders. People who have struggled with eating disorders or disordered eating will be sharing their story in detail. So please be advised that this content may not be for everybody right now, especially if you're currently in the throes of recovery. Our goal is to make sure that you get the best help necessary for you or a loved one. This podcast should not replace therapy or treatment. To get help, support, or more resources, head to nationaleatingdisorders.org. 
Okay, so we're going to start today's episode off with a story that I shared with Lisa from my life last weekend or so. And you're like, oh, we should talk about that. Mm-hmm. So I went to dinner with my husband and three other couples. And I was there talking to the other wives that were there. We were at the bar, got a drink, and we were all talking. And then we sat down and I was still talking, never even looked at the menu. And I guess some of the guys that had been there before took it upon themselves to just order everything. And maybe one of the other wives was involved in it too, but I was so engaged in some conversation that I didn't even realize menu ordering was happening. And old me would have been so hyper-focused of what's on the menu because I need to know what I can eat because what ingredients are in it? Is it gluten-free? Does it have dairy? All the things. But I was so engaged in my conversation that I kind of looked over and they're like, oh yeah, we ordered for everybody. We're just going to get a bunch of stuff and share. Like we've been here before. We know what's good. We got it handled. Mm -hmm. And I had no freak out moment about it in the past that would have freaked me out because I had no control of whatever was coming to the table. And I probably would have done something awkward like, oh, I'm going to need a menu and I'll just order something like thanks, but no thanks. And I would have been the one person that ordered my own meal Mm -hmm. for me to have. Of course, other people could have it if they wanted. But it was so freeing to just be like, cool, I have no idea what's coming. And the food would just come out and I had no idea what it was and I would just eat it. Because I never saw the menu, so I never saw all the ingredients, and it was awesome. And relied on your actual internal body to dictate, do I like this, not should I like this, or how good is this for me, or anything like that, like just to get the feedback from your body, and I'll give it a voice. Right. And But not at the same time, because you were just enjoying conversation and time spent with others. Right. Which is a huge takeaway that we want people to get from this series is that when we put a hyper focus on food in our bodies, we miss out on joy that's all around us. I call it disordered eating, but I'm usually replacing it with disordered living. It's not even the food. It's everything that it bleeds into. Mm -hmm. And that can end up putting you in a really sad, lonely place. And so... That was a, I felt like a like a moment for me where it just kind of now it's, I'm starting to see it organically unfold and take organically place. It's just happening and you have to like look back and be like, wait, what did I just do? No, I mean, it was. And I was sharing it with you with excitement because I even said something to my husband, almost patting myself on the back when we got in the car. I was like, whoa, did you see how like cool I, and chill I was about all of that? And it's because I have that open dialogue with him. I really wasn't. I didn't need affirmation from him for it, even though that's my love language. So I was hoping he noticed because there are times where I got so fixated on controlling every single thing that I was going to eat. And that was in my body that I wasn't eating out at all. And my husband and I went to the beach, 30A down in Florida, Rosemary Beach, cutest little restaurants. And I was suddenly out and I was going to have to eat out in a restaurant for the first time in like, a month or something. I think I was at like that month mark of I controlled everything that I was eating. And it was terrifying. I stared at the menu forever. It wasn't an enjoyable experience. We were on a date and my husband was miserable mm-hmm. and I put us in that place. Can I was I share n- something to give some people some peace of mind too. Please. One of the most interesting things about restaurant going is this pretty universal that people who experience what you and I have experienced, disordered eating, have a fear of going out to restaurants. And in my opinion, it's completely unfounded and 
comes from the media always talking about how don't go to restaurants, you lose your control, you don't know how much you eat, big portions, this ingredient, that ingredient, sugar, salt, butter, all the things that, you know, we were once told we can't have. But I was talking to my brother the other day who is on his own journey right now and he started eating, quote unquote, clean. And he's like, well, I can't go to restaurants, right? And I'm like, why can't you go to a restaurant? I was like, first of all, I don't agree with some of the things that he does. But I'm like, why wouldn't you go to a restaurant? He's like, because it's a restaurant. I'm like, yeah, but why? And I was like, a restaurant just serves real food. And he's like, what? And I'm like, a restaurant prepares food fresh. It's fresh ingredients. Your body knows how to break that down and use it properly. And he's like, I never thought of that. Because it's a restaurant's typically not serving you a processed food? Exactly. Processed. It's not fast food. It's food that's made with love and in fresh ingredients most of the time. They're taking time to chop up fresh basil, to do all these things that actually pack nutrition oftentimes into it. And when it comes to portions, just to keep that in mind, like someone arbitrarily once threw into a magazine, like be, be wary of restaurant portions. They're so big. I've been in plenty of situations where the portion size was too small for me. And so always take like commandeering your own ability to dictate how much you eat in a restaurant setting and not falling prey to the lie of portions are too big, which doesn't make any sense. We all have different needs. We all have different bodies. It changes day to day know that you have the wisdom and the ability to go out to dinner and use your body as a tool to send feedback back and know that the food is not necessarily dooming your efforts or whatever, you know, just to give people some freedom to kind of double think or question the things that they've been told that they shouldn't do for their health. Thank you for doing that. Cause that was a lot of why I struggled with eating out and why, you know, the other night was such a huge milestone for me of now I'm like, ah. Oh, and it is, if you feel trapped in where I once was, I just, I, my prayer for you is that you have the freedom soon. And that was the whole, when I called Lisa wanting to start this little series, I was like, I just, I want people to feel free. And even I'm still on my journey. I'm still celebrating those milestones of quote unquote freedom from these shackles. I feel like I've been in for years. I would say there's like different shackles mm -hmm. that are all related same. kind of mm -hmm. to the same thing. But I had that freedom the other night. And I think for my husband, that was really cool because he has been to places with me like when we were at the beach where I have not been that cool to be around at all. Mm -hmm. like, I've brought a protein bar to a restaurant before. I brought my own food to a restaurant before. And then that's what you ate? Yeah. Yeah. I've taken my own juice. Like everybody else was eating and I drank a juice because I was on a cleanse or something. We knew we were going to talk about this topic a little bit. So I just texted my friend Mary last minute to see if she would join us because she said something the other day to me that hit me. And I want her to say it again. I want y'all to hear it from her. So, you know, I'm not like making it up or anything. And also it, she wasn't meaning to call me out. She wasn't like she was expressing like genuine excitement about where I am with food now and how that was going to be cool because we had a trip coming up to Austin and you'll hear what she's going to say in a minute. But I'll just say the reason why I want her to come on and say it is because it's something I sat with. She probably just said it as like something fun and exciting, but it hit me as like, oh my gosh, like I was that person and Mary didn't mean any harm by it at all. But I immediately knew that I was sucking the joy from other people around me when they were hanging out with me because, and I was being selfish of like, well, this is my favorite juice place. So this is where we're going to go. And this is all we're going to have to eat. And right. you're not going to get to experience the town you're visiting because they have the best green juice here and they have the best smoothie or salad here. Like this is what we're consuming. Mm -hmm. 
And you'll hear in just a second when we get her on what she said. And then I have some thoughts after that. So I think she's on the phone right now. So Mary. Hey. Okay. So thank you for coming on. I want you to just tell people exactly what you said to me the other day when we realized (laughs) that we were going to be in Austin together with my newfound food freedom. (laughs) Okay. I was just excited to be able to go out to fun restaurants and just try a bunch of the awesome food in Austin that we haven't been able to do in the past, I guess, or we didn't do in the past. Right. Because we've been in Austin together multiple times and I typically did what? Well, I do feel like maybe the last time it was a little better, but yeah, especially like the first time I think we were there for a week and I think we went to the juice land place. I just remember I got home and all my friends were like, Oh, where'd you go to eat? Whatever. And I was like, Oh, like racking my brain. And I'm like, Juice land. <laughs> and I think we went to Whole Foods Salad Bar one. You were like in your work mode a lot. And I didn't like think that much of it. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, I'm definitely excited to go. And even just like going out to eat, like for the social, like the community of it and like conversations and all of that and like trying new things is what I don't want to like make you feel bad. Oh, and you didn't. Or it's like not something I like think about all the time. <laughs> no, and you didn't. But it just was okay. like when you said it, For me, it was just something I'm glad you said because it had me reflect on, oh, wow, my actions or how I was trying to put myself in a box meant that I was putting everybody else around me in a box. I mean, you were just being a nice friend and being like, okay, fine. Yeah, I guess we'll go to the juice place or I guess we'll go to Whole Foods or we'll just do whatever so that Amy can eat inside her contained safe space of this box I was putting myself in. And yeah, it did cause me to miss out on social experiences and connecting and, you know, conversations that can end up having around the table if you're just relaxed around food. And for me, it was just never a relaxing thing until like recently. Yeah. It was just more rigid, I think before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's all. I just wanted you to come on so that people knew it was a real, like (laughs) that it was a real comment and that you said it and that it's that Okay. Well, I don't want to make you feel bad because I feel like I'm proud of you. And like, I think I'm excited to like, is this new freedom? Yeah, so, I know. Yeah. Can't wait to see you again so we can just go out to eat and have community and can hang I come? out. And Lisa can come. <laughs> I want to meet yeah, Mary. Yeah, Lisa, come. <laughs> yeah, I'll have my, I met Mary on Twitter and Lisa on Instagram. <laughs> and later on in the episode, we're actually going to have a girl, Brenna, on. We're going to get into social media and body image and all of that. So that'll also be oh, in today's cool. episode. Speaking of how I met Mary. <laughs> Some people are like, really? Y'all met on Twitter? I'm like, yeah. You never know who you're going to meet. So, okay. Well, thank you for coming on and I hope you have a good rest of your day. Yeah. You guys too. Okay. Bye. Okay. Bye. Okay. So yeah, after Mary told me that and I was telling you this, Lisa, like for days I thought, how was I that person? Mm -hmm. And that is just not cool. And so again, another freedom bell of like, yes, when I am taking trips with girlfriends or they're in my city and they want to experience something, I now can go do that with them. And and I think you've taken time to say, like, what brings Amy happiness? What does Amy value? And you've begun that self-work of getting to know what you value. And it sounds like you value your friendships or experiences or adventure even more than you value having a green juice mm-hmm. yeah. by yourself or forcing them to go there. But for so long, the lie, I had a, a false sense of my values. Um, 
or you just never, we, we don't take time to assess our values. Nobody says, hey, check in with yourself. Are, do your behaviors match up for the things that you value? Because it's only when we live in line, aligned with our values, do we find some happiness. And oftentimes the things that we think will bring us happiness, such as being thin or even making money, are actually not the things that we value the most, yet we're prioritizing them because that's what society has either told us to do or told us that we have to do to belong. And we'll wrap today's episode towards the end. We'll touch on values again. And then even the homework from today's episode will be tied to values. Yours. You getting to know your values. Yeah, you. Not not, not me. (laughs) Me and you. Everybody listening. (laughs) Yeah. I thought you pointed at me when you said it. And I'm like, no, you. You. Your values. I'm pointing to the microphone. You guys in there listening. (laughs) Yeah. But I'm really wanting to paint the picture for the type of person I was like. And family is something that I know that I value. Well, on that note, I think it's important to always be thinking about who you once were versus who you are now. And our values often reflect that because we might be told when we're younger that we value one thing when we grow up and we see the world and we learn that we value other things. So taking time to actually assess allows us to reflect who we once were versus who we are now and how we can choose behaviors that encourage us to be our best selves. So I think now would actually be the perfect time, Amy, if you shared your personal story and your letter to your younger self. Okay, I can do that. I can't pinpoint an exact moment that I started to gnaw like my body, but at age 16, that's when the binging and purging started and the constant comparison of my body to other girls. I do know that a few years before that, I was exposed to dieting and learned what fat-free foods were. It was the 90s, so think snack wells and spray butter. I became obsessed with fat-free anything and everything, even marshmallows, because they were, well, fat-free, so they totally fit my criteria for a meal. I had no knowledge of actual nutrients or any other parts of a food label. I would just check and see if it said zero grams of fat, and I was good to go. This wasn't sustainable and caused a lot of restriction. Living that way eventually led me to binging on foods that I didn't allow myself to have and then feeling awful, so I had to find a way to get rid of it. Also around the age of 16, I started working out a lot. I was very obsessed with step class. I would run in my neighborhood all the time, full on carrying my CD disc player. Again, it was the 90s. I would do my mom's Jane Fonda VHS tape if I couldn't make it to the gym or it was raining. And for some reason that blows my mind today, I was introduced to energy pills at a particular gym that I went to. I was a kid and an adult was selling me pills that were basically uppers and curbed my appetite. Between the restriction of foods and the binging and purging and the diet pills, I started to lose weight temporarily, and it felt good. That is, if you think that fat-free yogurt with fat-free cereal mixed in for lunch every day at school sounds appetizing. Yep, that's what I took for lunch. I'd sometimes have an apple with it that I would eat with a spoon so that it took me longer to finish, and I'd always have a Diet Coke. The temporary weight loss felt good. That is, if I could resist the bad foods at my dad's house where all of my binges took place. Even with pills that curb my appetite, I literally could not resist all the stuff he kept in his house that I didn't allow at my mom's house. Ice cream sandwiches, chips, nutter butters, to name a few. The temporary weight loss felt good. That is, if you think making yourself throw up is awesome. I mean, if it was an effortless purge, then yeah, there was this high associated with that feeling that you just got rid of all the food and your stomach is so flat and life is good again. But the majority of purges were exhausting, frustrating, and just flat out 
awful. So many times I thought my eyeballs were going to pop out of my head or my brain was going to explode and my heart was going to stop and I was going to die right there by the toilet. And this is how people would find me. Those thoughts would literally go through my mind as I was doing it, but that didn't stop me. I kept right on with it. The temporary weight loss felt good. That is, if you don't count the days that I was out of my diet pills and my mom couldn't even drag me from my bed to go to school because I didn't think I could face the day without my magic capsules. I would cry to my mom from bed begging her not to make me go to school that day. She, of course, had no idea it was because I was out of my pills. Towards the end of high school into my college years, I tried so many diets that shall remain nameless, continuing my restrict, binge, and purge, and workout way too much behaviors into early adulthood. My super long gym sessions in college always ended with me sitting in the sauna with saran wrap on my stomach. I would drink slim fast for most meals, but those were all my good days. On a bad day, I couldn't resist stopping at multiple fast food places, or if I got Girl Scout cookies, I had to eat the whole box. But somehow around the age of 22 or so, I decided no more purging, well, in the form of throwing up. I was still purging by working out and not sure how I stopped throwing up, but I did. I think I was really convinced that it would kill me, and I also didn't like how puffy it made my face. I thought that eliminating that part from my routine would solve all the problems, but my obsession with food and diets and working out continued, always trying some new plan that was finally going to be the thing to transform my body. Transform into what? I'm not quite sure, but that was always my goal. Over the many, many years of this, I would miss out on family meals or nights out with friends because the foods didn't fit whatever plan I was on at the time. If I did happen to show up, I was zero fun because I would bring my own food or just not eat at all and sit in judgment of my family eating whatever my dad or my mom made, like I can't believe they're eating that. Looking back, I was just jealous. I can't get those moments back. My mom passed away almost six years ago and my dad can no longer cook given his health conditions. So literally it's too late for me to enjoy their cooking. And speaking of my mom's passing, it was literally the day after she died that my throwing up returned after almost a decade. Our brains are complex. So again, not sure why that traumatic experience brought it back, but it did. And we dive into more of that during a segment that Lisa and I recorded with therapist Catherine DeFada. I'm gonna attach that at the end of this episode in case you missed it. It's a deeper look into my story, which a lot of our stories are incredibly long battles that take much more than the time in this podcast. So for the sake of time and the story I'm sharing right now, I wanna tell you about a book that I read a little over a year ago. It's called Brain Over Binge. And after I read it and put some of the things into practice, like stopping any and all diets immediately and rewiring my brain, literally walking away from binges, telling my brain that it will get food again, I was able to stop binging and purging and my obsession with food. An obsession that I created for myself way back when my first fat-free diet began as a kid and my brain wasn't fully developed. The theory in this book won't help everyone, but it helped me, so I wanna share it. Lisa and I believe that every person's journey and recovery is different, but for me, Brain Over Binge resonated with me more than any therapist that I went to from my teenage years into my 30s that told me that my food issues stemmed from trauma surrounding my dad leaving my mom when I was nine years old. So here's what Brain Over Binge taught me. I am not diseased or flawed. My brain is healthy. I don't have an inability to cope. I have power over binge urges. I can end bulimia and binge eating disorder without a major personal transformation. And I'm happy to say that I was able to do that. The bulimia and binging, they've ended. I'm still on a journey though, just like many of you, but I'm thankful to know that I'm not alone. 
Dear Teenage Amy, you'll learn at age 39 during a therapy session that everyone has screens that they filter things through during their life. Each person's filter depends on their experiences. Your childhood had some traumas that caused insecurities that caused you to question your worth. Then you were fed a lie that your worth was in what you ate and what size you were. Controlling that was the key to happiness. Again, another lie. Have compassion for yourself. You didn't know better. For years and years, you will put everything through your screen that will cause priorities to be all wrong and relationships to suffer. But there is hope, a true desire for things to change for the better. And they will, if you put in the work. And you'll be able to use your story for good so that others don't feel alone. Now that we heard Amy's amazing story and letter to herself, we thought the perfect transition could be to hear from Karen Nunzig, who is a registered dietitian that works specifically with eating disorders. And we are going to learn a little bit more about binging since that was such a theme in Amy's life for a long time and really learn what a binge is and what we can do to better cope with them or perhaps end them from happening. Mm -hmm. So here is our talk with Karen. Today, we are welcoming a special guest to the show. Her name is Karen Nunzig, and she is a registered dietitian who works with eating disorders. Welcome, Karen. Hi. So happy to be here. We are so happy to have you. So what makes you super unique is we have spoken to a therapist that works with eating disorders and disordered eating, and you are a registered dietitian who works with eating disorders and disordered eating as well, right? Yeah, that's right. So I feel like the best place to start is if somebody thinks that they might have disordered eating or an eating disorder, should they seek a dietitian or a therapist, or is there something else they should do as a first step? They should seek out both. The treatment process really takes it takes a village, you know, and I think people most often start with therapy and then the therapist realizes, wow, we're talking about food a whole lot and maybe I don't know how to direct some of these questions and that's where the dietitian comes in. And so uh, if someone's struggling with an eating disorder or disordered eating, they typically have a full team. So that would look like a therapist and a dietitian, maybe a doctor, maybe a psychiatrist, kind of depending on what they need. And then the dietitian and the therapist work together, right? So the therapist will have information for the dietitian. The dietitian will have information for the therapist. So kind of work on it as a team. And it's really overlapping, you know. So therapists will, if you're working with someone with eating issues, of course, food's going to come up. And if you're a dietitian working with someone that has eating disorder or disordered eating, of course, emotions are going to come up and feelings are going to come up. So there's a lot of overlap, but it's really important to have, you know, to kind of tackle it from both angles because they're so intertwined, the emotions and then the actual food and eating. When I think back to my days with disordered eating or orthorexia, I would argue that I knew mm -hmm. too much about food. How does a registered dietitian assist with somebody who knows too much about food? What sort of tools can they bring to the table? So that kind of reminds me of one of the hallmark defining points of what like, disordered eating is. And it's when you're looking at external cues versus internal ones. So external cues, for example, would be avoiding gluten because you saw um, a blog post claiming that it was poison, right? Versus like avoiding gluten because you notice that it's giving you stomach aches. So you can have all the nutrition knowledge in the world, but if you're not aware of what's going on in your own body, none of it matters. Like it doesn't 
apply to you. So it makes it really hard when you're like so obsessed with all the external cues because, I mean, understandably so, this society we live in, it's all you hear. It gets really hard to go inward and to listen to your body and to use your body's wisdom rather than some wisdom that someone else is giving you or that you're getting from another place that isn't related to you or what you're going through. Something literally just popped into my head. And so I want to say it so I don't forget to ever say it in this entire series. But I got so messed up with if something was gluten-free or it had it on the package or packaging like or ingredients like and I thought I knew what ingredients were good for me or whatever, but because I was trying to like be in such a box, like I would opt for some sort of bar that I saw Mm -hmm. that fit my criteria and Mm -hmm. I would, but I, and I would never eat a banana because it was too much sugar Mm -hmm. or because it didn't fit in my criteria. So I would eat some processed engineered product that just because it fit into my box. I'm struggling for words too, because Karen, I am... I'm in this right now and trying to get out of it. And I don't want to use like the wrong language to like throw anybody off that's listening, but it's a nutritious, it's a nutritious food. I was going to say it's like a good food or a healthy food, but like, I'm really struggling with like me separating or stopping the use of foods being good and foods being bad. But I know that a banana is freaking nutritious, but I wouldn't grab for something like a banana or an apple or blueberries because of the sugar content. But I would grab for something else on a shelf just because it said it was gluten-free. Like, that's how messed up my thinking was. And I get that the banana and whatever is gluten-free. I'm just giving you, like, extreme yeah. examples of, like, I would stay away from foods that are grown from the earth. I and- think you bring up such a point that's going to resonate with a lot of listeners. And part of your story that you've mentioned is some macro counting. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I found most fascinating about macro counting from people that said, oh, this is freedom, is the fact that, they would reach for food when they weren't hungry to reach their macronutrient markers. So, oh, I need 20 more grams of protein. I'll go get this bar that has 20 grams of protein and completely ignoring the fact that the body could be wise, even like that Mm -hmm. general idea of it. Mm -hmm. So, Karen, a lot of people will say, or I've heard people overuse or use the word binge. What classifies mm. a binge? Oh, I love this question. One of It's funny you ask that because one of my pet peeves is when people say like, oh, it felt bingy, that word bingy. Yeah. I'm like, you know, what, do you, what does that mean? What are you really trying to say when you say something felt bingy? So I guess we can start by defining like what a binge is. Binges look different for everyone, but a t- typical binge would look like eating a very large quantity of food. So like objectively speaking, a very large quantity of food in a short period of time. It is often done at a very rapid pace, usually done in secret and usually done with feelings of guilt and shame and, you know, no attack, you know, no awareness of hunger and fullness, just kind of, it's a tool. It's usually a tool to numb or cope with something. It can, there's different types of binges, you know, some can be emotional, some can be a byproduct of restriction, of just being really, really hungry and kind of losing control. But when people say it feel, something feels bingy, what they're really saying is that they feel a loss of control around food. And that, again, can happen for a lot of reasons. So one of the most typical reasons we see that is because people try to be really restrictive and rigid with their food and it doesn't work. And then they end up 
you know, kind of just giving up and losing all sense of control with food. So swinging from like one end of the spectrum to the other. And when you think about disordered eating, I kind of, or eating disorders, I kind of envision it as a spectrum, right? So on one end, you have more of the symptoms of over control. So more that's on the very um, extreme end of that spectrum would be anorexia. Things like over-exercise or dieting, things like that would be on that end of the spectrum. And then the other end of the spectrum is more of the under control. So more of the binging, the compulsive overeating, emotional eating, things like that. And then normal eating kind of falls somewhere in the middle, right? That neutral ground, that healthy, what kind of what everyone is going for. The more often everyone exists along the spectrum, you know, you'll have days, you, no one's stagnant, kind of all over the place. But the more often you push yourself to one extreme, what we typically see is people swing even farther into the other extreme. So it kind of like the binge restrict cycle. And so, yeah, we're kind of trying ideally to look at, you know, people are really worried about binging, but not really looking at the restriction that may be causing it. And sometimes that looks like going on a diet and then having a cheat day every weekend or whatever. It can look a lot of different ways, but I'm so glad I'm that, thinking of it on that spectrum. No, I'm so glad that you said that because I experienced, I never purged, but I had a season. I, I don't mean like literally a season, but a season of my life where binging was a big part of it. But I was eating. I I know because I'm a nutritionist and I had caloric awareness that I was eating Mm -hmm. enough or what I thought was enough. And I remember telling my therapist, you know, I'm binging. And she said, could it be related to restriction? And thinking back now to it, it it wasn't total calories, which I often see with my own clients, results in a binge later in the day. That's a very common theme. But for me, it was actually I was eating enough calories, but I was still restrictive with what I would eat. And it still resulted in a binge, which brings me kind of to my second question is, in your opinion, does it have to be the typical Oreos, Doritos, Cheetos to be a binge? No, definitely not. What I see most often is people will binge on the things that they restrict. So oftentimes people will not allow themselves to eat those foods that they label as bad. So, you know, whatever they may be. And those are the exact foods that they're binging on. So it doesn't really, and everyone has their different fear foods, right? Maybe for some people it's carbs. Maybe for some people it's fats. Maybe for some people it's bananas. Like what, it doesn't really matter what it is. It's the thing that you're restricting is the thing that's going to have that little glitter, you know, in your eye when you look at it. It's that thing that's going to be up on the pedestal. It's that thing that's going to have the power. So it can be, it's typically the thing that you're restricting is the thing that you're binging on. And yeah, it doesn't have to be caloric. Like restricting can look like denying yourself foods that you enjoy eating, even if you are getting enough calories and nutrition. Like Lisa and I were having this conversation, I think just on maybe FaceTime the other day about if you're outer wisdom and knowing like what foods are nutritious for you. And I don't know when you're working with someone as their dietitian, like are there ever times, and Lisa, you said this, that a client might need to go eat whatever they've been restricting from their life and just eat that. Like if it's for me, donuts all day or Chick-fil-A, like I know that that's not going to make me feel good, but because Mm -hmm. I've restricted it, Like if I were to go through Chick-fil-A, which I love Chick-fil-A, shout out, waffle fries, like they're amazing. (laughs) But there was a time where I couldn't have that without my whole day being completely derailed. So I would get Chick-fil-A and then that would mean, okay, that was my bad lunch. Like I need to 
plan mm. some bad snacks between now and my bad dinner because this mm. is my bad day because I've gone done and bl- blown it instead of if I were to just let myself eat the Chick-fil-A and be like, yum, that was amazing. Moving on with my day. Can't wait till I'm hungry again. Don't know when that is, but I'm just going to roll with it. Like I would just go into that. And so, sorry, I'm struggling with like how I want to say this, but I think Lisa and I were saying it the other day. Like I know that vegetables and fruit and lean proteins or whatever that looks like, it's going to be something nutritious for my body and that it needs. But I don't want to restrict myself from having the Chick-fil-A if I want to. But if you give yourself that freedom. Radical permission. Your radical Mm -hmm. permission. Like I can have Chick-fil-A any day that I want to. Therefore, somehow I'm my brain, like I'm giving it that permission and all of a sudden it's less desirable. But sometimes to maybe teach ourselves of how food makes us feel. If I need to go have Chick-fil-A seven days in a row or donuts, like for every meal, five days a week, like I'll kind of learn naturally. I don't know. Is that ever a prescription to like tell someone, give yourself that permission to have it every single day. And then you'll see like you have freedom from it. Absolutely. Because when you give yourself that permission, you free up a lot of brain space. You have all of a sudden time to go inward and to realize, oh, I actually don't feel so great when I'm eating XYZ. But if all you're thinking about is eating XYZ, you can't go that next step. You can't, you can't go inward and feel what you're feeling. You're too clouded by the anxiety or the judgment or the guilt. And so it makes it really hard to make food choices that feel good, both mentally and physically, because it's really hard to feel what's going on in your body if you're so in your head. By dropping all of that, which is, again, like the hard part, then then you're finally able to really listen to your body and listen to what it's asking for. And that's when the freedom kind of starts coming it, in a little bit. it most likely won't ask for a donut every meal because that's not going right, to exactly. sustain us. And so I think Lisa was even saying when I was talking to her about it, she's like, yeah, sometimes I maybe have had to tell people, go ahead, eat donuts every day, see how you feel. And then That might help fix the problem. And I only learned this myself by giving myself permission, you know, on the weekends, which used to be, you know, this time where it was this constant guilt because I wanted things and didn't. And then I'd let myself have it. And then I'd go into Monday with, you know, a new set of rules. When I started to listen to my body that I found on Monday, I was craving this body that I thought was unruly was actually asking me for a salad. I didn't have to have a salad, but I wanted a salad. But I could also have a salad with bread now because I recognize that bread is allowed at all times. And by allowing myself to have a piece of bread now, I didn't binge, you know, at other times. But one thing I just want to say before I ask you a second question that goes into both of what Amy and I experienced is I used to binge on quote unquote healthy foods, Mm -hmm. foods that I were allowed. I am not the girl that reached for Doritos, Oreos, Chick-fil-A. I show, I loved healthy foods so much that, you know, I remember I used to laugh because I'd buy the party size container of hummus, which was like a, jar. I don't even know how to explain that size, you know, big, (laughs) big, last most people weeks or months, you know, and I'd, I'd come home and eat the entire thing of hummus. So I know that Amy and I, we have a friend who had recently told us that she binge eats on carrots. So it's like, Mm. I just want to say that any food could fall within yeah, I think, binge, I think, right? Karen, you had said like a lot of times it's what you restrict that you end up binging on. And while I totally think that's the case, but what about people too that 
you know, eat an entire sleeve of rice cakes. They're not doing mm-hmm. it because of rice. Like I personally do actually enjoy a rice cake, but I got to put some nut butter and honey on it. Like that's, that's awesome to me. Mm-hmm. I don't think that rice cakes are bad, but there's no way, because I have been there and I've had to tell myself, there's no way that an entire sleeve of rice cakes is amazing and what my body was craving. I was just in a binge and mindlessly just not going to say after that that's it. too much food, but to say that that might not that you needed sustenance. Maybe you needed a full meal, right. not the entire sleeve of rice cake. Well, I mean, I don't even know how many are in there, but I can tell you that's <laughs> like, and that wasn't all I was consuming. Right. By the way, right. it was like that was that, and that then until the I went into the pantry to right. reach for something else. Right. What about when we're just binging, mm-hmm. but it's not the food we've been restricting, but it's probably happening because we restricted. Just wanted to highlight that there's many types of binges that, but regardless, what can someone do after a binge to cope in a healthful manner? It depends on a lot, right? Like when we talk about people's relationship with food, we're talking about much more than what they're eating. We're talking about how they're eating, the thoughts surrounding the food, the exercise, the body image, the intentions, and, you know, taking a deeper look at why the binge happened, why they're doing what they're doing. Because at the end of the day, food is more than just food, right? Every behavior, these certain things that we do with food, they, it serves a function, you know, it can be used as a tool for soothing or a coping mechanism or can, you know, use food to change your appearance in order to feel accepted or can be used as a form of communication, a of control, a way to identify yourself, like the list goes on as like the different functions that these certain behaviors play. They do something for someone. So, yeah, it may just be that you are... <laughs> starving yourself. And so a binge happens, but it may also be a laundry list of other things. So what I would say is after a binge or after any behavior use, right, take a minute to sit back and ask yourself, like, what the hell was that about? Like, why did that happen? And maybe go back, try to put the pieces together. Like what led up to this moment? Where did it begin? Where where did I get off track? So really going deeper and recognizing that it's probably not about the food, (laughs) to be honest. There may be something else going on. And um, maybe the place to do that is in your therapist's office or with a friend or alone in your journal, like writing it out, whatever works for you. But I think the first step would be to just kind of go inward and ask yourself, like, what happened? What happened there? And like doing it without judgment, without shame, like, you know, not beating yourself up because you did whatever it was. Like, just trying to look at it in a compassionate way and understanding what led to it. So that way, maybe next time you feel that trigger, you are able to do something a little bit differently that is actually helping you, you know, instead of masking whatever it is. For people that are curious if their eating patterns are normal or maybe feel a bit disordered, no one can tell you if something is disordered or not just by looking at the behavior itself. And judging by the behaviors alone isn't enough. It really comes down to what's going on inside. So the thoughts, the urges, beliefs, intentions um, that lead to certain choices or behaviors, which it's really hard to, you know, I can't tell you that. It's really only yourself that can tell you if something feels off. So taking a deep dive inward versus reacting and grabbing for more food rolls would be a much more helpful, sustainable solution to make change. Yeah, absolutely. So what about the phrase food is medicine and what extent do you do you believe that that's true and like a right way of eating versus like a wrong way? Can you just touch on that? Especially as a dietitian, yeah. it's a really interesting yeah. combination yeah. that you do. Yeah, food is medicine. 
absolutely, 110%. It depends what it is that needs healing is how you're going to use it. If you're struggling with a chronic disease, food can be a really powerful tool in mediating that and in taking care of your physical body. What I specialize in is more people that are struggling with the mental portion of health. And using food as medicine in that respect can be really powerful, just as powerful as it can be in in healing the physical body. And ways that we do that is by neutralizing food. So instead of looking at foods as good versus bad, just kind of making them all, you know, all foods equal, all foods can fit type of looking at it through that lens, kind of taking the power away from food. Food is not just food, but it shouldn't be a source of anxiety or distress. You know, it shouldn't be rigid or rule-based or a source of guilt. I love how you're kind of saying that food is is medicine is this phrase that can kind of take people down a road of orthorexia. But what you're saying is mm -hmm. not, is all food is medicine as long as you're using it in a way that protects your mental health. So I'm just going to use a typical food here. You know, an Oreo food can be medicine if that Oreo is being shared with your grandmother who you don't have much time with or something. You know, if you're if you're creating a special moment with Mm -hmm. somebody to connect, that food can be medicine. Food for the soul. Food for the soul. It's refreshing to hear that, actually. Yeah. No, and important. And I think an important thing for a lot of people to hear. I can't think of how many times I missed out on eating something special with, I mean, my dad has a feeding tube right now and food was his love language. And I'm sure I'll mention that mm-hmm. a million times during this series, but that was how he showed love and loved to share new recipes and cook things for us. And now the last almost two years, ever since a cancer surgery, he's had a feeding tube and he can't eat and he had a stroke. So his hands don't really work. So he can't cook like he used to. I'm just like, oh, bummer. Like I hang out with him now and I'm like, dad, I've even said to him as I'm in this process of healing, like, dad, I'm so sorry. Like I was such a party pooper. I mm. I mean, how did you even hang out with me? Cause I would show up with my own stuff or I wouldn't eat it or I, oh, worse. I would make him feel bad about what he was cooking for us. And what a high horse I was on and just how I literally call it my healthy eating high horse. <laughs> yes. Like, ah, uh, I want to go back and just kick myself and be like, wake up, stupid. No, or you want to go back and hug yourself because we're okay. looking at it. Oh, yes. Compassionate. You're right. I'm going <laughs> to give myself grace because I didn't know any better. But gosh, it's just I know there's probably a lot of people in the same way. But, you know, it's not too late. We still have a lot ahead of us. At least I do in life, I hope. And Maybe my dad will eat one day soon. That's the goal. We're trying to get him healthy. And I'll be like, dad, what do you want to cook? And I'm going to eat it all. (laughs) Or what do you want me to cook for us? And let's eat it together because that will be nourishment to my mental health. Right. Yeah. It can be such a powerful healing tool if you're using it the right way. And it can also, it can be such a form of distress. It has, so there's so much power that we put in food it really has potential to go so many different ways. It's really up to us how we how we decide to use it. Okay, well, thank you, Karen. We appreciate you coming on so much and sharing your wisdom with us. You can go follow Karen at Care For Yourself, and that's care with a K. Oh, I like that. <laughs> Thanks for having me.
So part of this series is hearing personal stories from real people. And I shared mine earlier in the episode. Lisa shared hers in the first episode, along with a few other girls. So if you happen to be just now listening and you're like, oh, wait, there's another episode. Yeah, go back to last week and check that out. But for now, I want to get into Lauren's story and her letter to herself. So here's Lauren. Dear younger Lauren, I'm sorry for being so critical and judgmental of your thoughts, actions, and physical attributes. I'm sorry for forcing you to chase and cling to a one-dimensional notion of perfection that led you to missing out on experiencing joy. I'm sorry you thought you didn't deserve happiness. If I could change one thing about that time, it would be nicer to myself, more forgiving and gentle. I can see clearly now that you just needed a hug, a friend, and a little kindness. I'm proud of you for excelling in school and being there for your family during that time of internal chaos. I know you would be proud now of how far you have come in your relationship to food, exercise, and to yourself. My name is Lauren. I started to become aware and self-conscious of weight in elementary school around puberty. My first attempt at weight loss was in the fourth grade when I convinced my mom to send me to a nutritionist to lose weight. Lots of rice cakes, which, by the way, I do enjoy to this day. Things got worse in high school when the only food groups I would eat were vegetables, lean protein, and Diet Coke. In high school, I also exercised and counted calories obsessively and experimented with laxatives, diet pills, and diuretics. I was depressed and lonely in high school. My parents fought a lot at home, and my obsession with food and exercise gave me a purpose and sense of control. It gave me an identity and schedule— I missed out on social events, eating my grandma's delicious food on holidays, and a whole lot more. I also lost my hair and my period. Losing my period scared me the most, and that's when I knew something had to change. I wasn't sure what or how, but it had to. If I had to describe my life in one word during this time, at my most restrictive and consumed, it would be small. Deep down, I knew I didn't want to live my life small. I wanted to take up space and soak up experiences both food-related and non-food-related. My relationship to food and exercise started to shift a bit in college. In the beginning of college, I would say I went to the opposite end of the spectrum and ate all of the food I had missed out on for years, to the point of uncomfortable fullness and renounced exercise altogether. Once the novelty wore off of eating all these foods I hadn't eaten for years, my relationship to food became a little bit less dramatic, and I started to exercise once in a while. I stopped counting calories, but still viewed certain foods and food groups as good or bad. Post-college, I still hopped on fad diets and counted calories when I felt out of control, but not to the extreme that I did in high school. It is only within the last few years, well into my 30s, that my relationship to food and exercise has become the healthiest it's ever been. My whole life, I spent so much energy, time, and missed out on relationships and social events because of my preoccupation with food, exercise, and looking a certain way. What it really comes down to is I don't want to miss out anymore. Life is too short, and when I really break down that thought process, if someone were to judge me based on how I look, I don't need or want them in my life anyway. I don't judge other people that way. Why would I judge myself so harshly? That's not to say that old thought patterns do not creep up regarding restriction or the morality of food, for example, but I use tools to self-soothe and bring me back to the perspective I ultimately want, which is to not miss out on all that life has to offer. 
So many of the tools Lisa and the Well Necessities provide have been helpful with this, and I go back to them often. I had this desire before to not miss out on life, but since taking the leap to truly nurture and honor this desire, I am able to let it guide my decisions and the way I live my life, and food choices and exercise become secondary. They are important, but they are not the most important part of me. They don't define me. It can be hard to maintain this perspective in the culture and world we live in, so I always try to be aware of the noise and navigate the best I can. When Mary was on a minute ago, we talked about how we were going to have Brenna on, and she is someone that I found on Instagram, but only because of Lisa. And I found Lisa on Instagram because somebody had reposted her. So whoever you are, thank you. I know, whoever reposted at the Well Necessities, (laughs) thank you. And Brenna is at the Wellful. And we'll get into that with our talk with her. But we thought it was an important conversation to be had because she is in that platform, that social media world. And I mean, Lisa, you are too. Any social media, whether anything can be toxic for anybody struggling with body dysmorphia, body image, food issues. Because I mean, every turn you could encounter a food page or a, a swimsuit page. If you think that you have a problem and you go looking for that quote unquote solution on Instagram, you will find it and you will get stuck there. Mm-hmm. Meaning that could be good or bad. So if you think you need fitness motivation because you don't like your body and you start only following Fitspo accounts, you will start to feel like the world looks like just Fitspo models. And that reflects negatively on how you feel about yourself. If you see your problem as I have a poor relationship with food in my body and you seek out body positive or body neutral accounts or people that are promoting a more positive self-acceptance message, you will find that. So I think that it's really easy to feel like what you see on your feed or on your stories is reality, but know that there's so many different pockets to look into and we could always find a more positive environment, I guess, as long as we're willing to search for it. Okay. So now we've got Brenna O'Malley on and on Instagram, Brenna, you are at the Wellful, W-E-L-L-F-U-L. And I have so enjoyed following you and you're a newer follow for me. And I wish I would have been following you for like, I don't know my whole life (laughs) because I feel like you just put so much out there. That's just exactly what I need to hear at that moment. Or, you know, I had a friend that was struggling with something the other day. And quite honestly, it was a friend who I thought, you know, life was going pretty great. I had no idea that she was dealing with some food issues and body stuff at all. And she just sent me a note saying, hey, this is what's going on. And I thought, oh my gosh, you need to see this post. And are you following? And I immediately sent her Lisa's Instagram. I was like, you got to follow the well necessities. Then you got to follow the wellful. I mean, those are like my <laughs> <All> two <the wells. laughs> go-tos because I was able to send her some posts and then also give y'all's Instagrams as a resource for someone. And Social media gets a bad rap at times for being so negative and toxic. But for me, if you use it correctly, it can actually be a pretty amazing place that can connect you with really cool people that are doing really powerful things. And so how do you see your Instagram and what do you want to use it for and how did you start it? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you. That's such a sweet story. And I think you're right. Like, it's so awesome to be able to connect in such an interesting way over social media. So I started my 
social media, like it was just an Instagram, you know, handle at the Wellful in 2017, after a few other like iterations of just, you know, kind of health or nutrition sort of Instagrams. But I had been working with a lot of other dietitians to help their social medias grow. And I was about to start my dietetic internship. So I was feeling a little bit more confident in, I guess, having a message out there. And I actually started it when there was the coconut oil articles that came out in that summer. And I know Lisa did like a whole live on that on her Facebook and Instagram too. But I just felt like there was such, it was like this peak for me of so much confusion and misinformation online and all of these kind of conflicting messages over, you know, what is quote healthy and what is not. And just felt like I wanted to be able to start of like have some, you know, mediating input there and have like a source was kind of helping to navigate those messages that were so So just get everyone up to speed. Brenna is a registered dietitian now. I guess you started the Wellful right before and the coconut oil debate was basically everybody was using coconut oil prior to 2017 for like a year or two. And then a big study came out that said, don't use coconut oil. And everybody started to panic because their favorite oil they now learned was something they they, they were confused. So the news left the consumer very confused. I feel like that's every few, few yeah. years we're left very confused. Exactly. Like, uh, are eggs okay? Should you have the it's yolk? Should you only have egg whites? Should we eat this or that? Should we be putting butter in our coffee? Like right. just there's all the fads out there. And then obviously a lot of the fads become news. I mean, I was watching a legit news program the other day and that whole thing on keto and that this is what everybody's doing. And they're just preparing these recipes and they're just throwing that out there because they know it's a buzz topic and that's what's going to get them views. Right. But then I'm like, what are you even saying right now? Because this <laughs> fried chicken you just made is considered quote unquote keto now that it's okay. You can eat as much as you want. It's keto. Right. And I'm like, please stop. Right. stop. So yeah, there's always different buzz things, I think, in the media and online and it does get confusing. But Brenna, in your experience, like how does Instagram, we'll just talk about that in particular, how do you, how does it contribute to disordered eating or orthorexia in your mind? I think a lot of what we can see is I think Instagram's really interesting because it's an image-based platform, right? So what we're getting is like these images and then text underneath. And I think kind of also contributing is that everybody has access to it, which is great in a lot of ways. You know, everyone kind of can have this platform that can make their business or, you know, share different information, but it also equalizes us in like who is sharing this information. So we don't always know, you know, what's the source, where is this coming from? And so that combined with this being an image-based platform, we often can see things like, you know, someone posting a photo because it has to come with a photo, right? So it's either of like their own body or someone else's body or a plate of food. And then we have this message attached to it. And it kind of ends up us associating this message maybe around health or, you know, what is, quote, like a good food or these different kind of black and white messages with these images. And that can really play really easily into, you know, our own associations with body image and what health looks like and really just putting all of this into that image focus. And so there's been a lot of research, too, around, you know, our associations and how social media is affecting us all, especially, um, you know, everybody, but especially there's, you know, a focus on like young females too. And, you know, there's a study out of Royal Society for Public Health saying that like nine and 10 teenage girls are unhappy with their bodies. And then also looking at like things like Facebook and Instagram 
for a short period of time was increasing those body image concerns compared to people who weren't using those platforms or feeling like they wanted to change things about their appearance after spending time on those social media platforms. So those images and messages that we're getting are, you know, impacting how we're feeling about our bodies too. So our bodies and our entire lives, like right. with the filters and the the time spent that goes into curation that most people spend, especially like pro content creators, that doesn't translate to the consumer or the, the Instagram user that sees, oh, their perfect life. I wish that message was better told because a lot of people use it for like art or, and they create an image that's just so unattainable, whether it's a plate of pancakes or them on vacation. But there's no understanding of the time that went into creating that. And so when they compare it to their plate of pancakes or their vacation, you know, where the colors aren't as bright or the details aren't so whatever, they're left with something a bit more drab because it's real life. Right. Yeah. And even thinking about like all of these, like even if you just take one photo of yourself and then you take two more steps and take another photo of yourself, like your photo, that photo looks totally different. And so if we think of that, like in terms of Instagram, like you're only getting these like tiny, tiny little snapshots into whether it's someone's like way of eating or life or what they look like or what anyone looks like. You know, those are just such a tiny fraction of reality. Yeah, we're just not seeing ourselves. And I'll admit, like, I if I'm doing a story and I pull it up and I'm like, oh, whoa, like, I can see every blemish on my face, all the wrinkles coming through, all the imperfection on my skin. I'm like, okay, I just swipe to a different filter. And it's like, oh, okay, I can speak to the camera now because I feel more comfortable with people seeing me in that. But that is my own way of Photoshopping my face. And, you know, I don't, I don't have Facetune or whatever it's called on my phone. And, but I know that's a thing where people alter and brush away cellulite on their legs if they're on the beach or, and we just got this thing that like anybody on Instagram, their body is perfect. They don't have cellulite. They don't have this. And it's this false image that I'm guilty of participating in because I use a filter. Like, do I Facetune my body? No. I know that it's different. I know it's not the same. It's a complicated topic. And that's not what we're going to totally dive into right now because I know it's so different. But it's it's almost like a gateway of like, okay, well, I changed this about myself. And then you see yourself in that real light sometimes. And you're like, oh, shoot. Like, is that? I almost forgot what I looked like because I kept seeing myself in the dang filter. But when it comes to our bodies, we don't even have a healthy sometimes perception anyway in our head of what we're even seeing. And I did see a post that you put up, Brenna, that said, I once had a therapist tell me that our bodies don't physically change very much every day. And me thinking I looked completely different one day to the next was more about my perception of how I see myself than what I actually look like. And that's how I learned about body image. That is how I really learned about like body image as a term was... What is body image? Body image is like our inner picture of our outer self. I mean, I still am very fascinated by it, but I think it's so interesting because it's not about what we look on, like on the outside, right? So a lot of the times, I think when we talk about like body positive or positive body image, we kind of get into this like thought about accepting or loving all of ourselves all the time. But really body image is about how we see ourselves and people of all different shapes and sizes and abilities and like looking all different sorts of ways can have all different degrees of positive body image, neutral body image, how they see themselves. So it's not influenced by our external appearance, but it does influence how we see ourselves. And then how do you think social media plays a role? Because again, social media can be so amazing, but at the same time, it can be toxic if we're looking 
to it for some sort of approval. And we're putting too much weight in that on how we see ourselves of like, how many comments do we get about our body? That then turns back into our brains of like, well, shoot, nobody commented that my body looked good. So now now it's one of those days where my perception is that my body's not good. Whereas the next day or the day before, you might be feeling like you're rocking your body and you're so confident and you're owning it. Like it can be something as quick as that, focusing on that we didn't get any comments and then boom, our brain shifts to that our body must not be good or whatever it is. Right. Yeah. And I and a big piece of that also comes from like, you know, who like we're talking about these curated images on social media. So a lot of the times we're seeing, you know, maybe one body type often, right? Like there's definitely like the thin ideal in our society and like kind of seeing very similar types of bodies on magazines and, you know, in social media and also those people feeling like that same pressure too, like we're talking about kind of like filter yourself too, or kind of attain that same image. So it impacts all of us. Um, But then as like the end consumer, when you're seeing these different posts about, you know, whether it's intentional or not, but someone who maybe is talking about, you know, eating a certain way to look a certain way, or seeing these same types of bodies that can kind of make us feel like even in our conversation just now talking about kind of how we feel that pressure to edit ourselves or look a certain way, whether it's with a filter or with like our eating habits, because a lot of the times those things can manifest into how we have such a tight association with what we look like and what we eat and like with weight and with what we're eating and, and health even and like all of those different things kind of compound into us trying to look this way through disordered eating patterns or through feeling really negatively about our bodies if they're not matching up to these, you know, ideals that we're seeing that we also know are really, you know, edited and like not necessarily attainable, but can kind of send that message when we're following a lot of the same people online. This is something I think you reposted from Diddy, or at least you gave Diddy credit because you put up, don't ever compare your living, breathing, beautifully imperfect, real human self to someone else's controlled online content. And whenever you see their content, if it's giving you some sort of like making you feel a certain way that is not moving you in the right direction, like what is your advice to people? And I guess we'll call it like a a social media cleanse or something. What is the best way to respond? Because they're going to exist in real life. There's going to be, you know, triggering people. Right. And I heard Demi Lovato, she was talking about how there's people she's really close to in her world that have these, well, what's defined, what people would consider what she's supposed to have as a pop star, this body. And so, but then these are her friends or they're models or whatever they are, but they're her friends, but she can't follow them on Instagram. And that's hard for her, but but it's a trigger. So, I mean, it might literally be that it's your close friend and it's not that they're doing anything wrong, but it could be a trigger for you. And so what is what is a, a red flag to look out for to know if you might need to mute somebody or just know that you're not seeing their content because it's not good for you? Right. So I would say that if someone is, well, first of all, if you're scrolling and you're kind of noticing yourself comparing your body or what you're eating or what someone else's workout or just day or even like something that has nothing to do with health, you know, if you're kind of comparing yourself to them and kind of getting that icky feeling, like unfollowing them or at least muting them, 
and muting, you know, they won't know that you muted them if it's maybe someone who you feel like, you know, for whatever reason, you don't want to actually unfollow them. Um, you won't see their stories and you won't see their posts. So that's a good option to have like in your back pocket. If someone is talking about, you know, cutting out like whole food groups or making, you know, maybe making comments about their own body that aren't making you feel good about yours. If they're doing a lot of like before and after photos even can put a lot of emphasis on what a body type and, you know, kind of in whatever context can kind of end up making one feel better or worse than the other. And so that's kind of a good sign sometimes to unfollow that if that's not helpful for you. If someone's labeling foods as good, bad, or guilty, because guilt is not an ingredient. So all foods are really guilt-free. That one always gets me. Or even if it's someone who's just posting a lot of photos about like their bodies or their plates and it's just not making you feel good. Like Instagram and, you know, social media, just like your real life, you can kind of curate it to be people and accounts and messages that fill you up and make you feel good. And you have a lot of control over your social media. And whereas maybe like if your coworkers are having a lot of diet talk, that can be harder to navigate because, you know, you're going into the office. But even though there are ways to, you know, navigate that too. But like your social media can really be like, if you don't want, if it's not someone who you would want to be like getting coffee with and hearing about their morning, you know, you don't need to be hearing about their morning every day or like what their workout was like or what they ate this morning. And you can kind of just do that like self audit almost of, you know, is this person making me feel really great or is it, is it not? And there was actually an article that came out today, and I've seen similar things about it, but it was actually about how there was decreased self-esteem and worsened mood after looking at Fitspiration photos. So those oh. kind of like hashtag Fitspo photos that you might think would be like promoting exercise or like inspiring people to like go to the gym and get active and that kind of a thing. But it was a study in Australia of like 108 undergraduate women, so 17 to 25 years old. And it showed that viewing Instagram images of like Fitspiration, like actually increased body dissatisfaction and mood and didn't necessarily motivate them to exercise either. So I think that sometimes like these things can maybe be coming from a place of like you know, thinking that this will be really inspiring to me, but kind of giving yourself that permission, like if it's not sitting well with you, you know, that you know your body best and you know yourself best and having that permission to like unfollow or mute that too. So Brenna, yeah. you didn't know I had this article literally pulled um, that you mentioned. <laughs> we didn't talk about it before and it's something that Lisa and I are going to touch on. So we'll do it here. And a quote too from a doctor in the article said, despite their positive intentions and popularity, hashtag Fitspiration images are yet another way to make women feel worse about themselves and their bodies. So I feel like so many times it's like I'm posting this as motivation, whether it's for yourself as accountability to keep going or maybe motivate somebody else. And it can be inspiring. We just have to be very, very careful. I've been on Instagram for a long time. And when I started, I was in the thick of my disordered eating before I was a dietitian. And I was definitely using those hashtags and finding accounts like that. And the scariest part of it is you don't know while you're in it. And you just chalk it up as motivation. And you think you should be doing this comparative analysis of you versus them to stay accountable, to be motivated. But it ends up being completely horrible for at least me, I think for most people. I mean, a few years ago, I don't know if you remember, Brenna, but like BBG, do you remember that? Mm -hmm. Like BBG was all the rage. There was not a girl on Instagram that was not doing BBG. And I was already far past my journey that I knew that that was not something that I needed to be doing. 
And now so many people have come out where it's the same thing. It's like you fall into a community where you find people. And that's what I think social media does. You find a community of like-minded people and you engage in these activities. And because everybody's doing it, it gets normalized. And then when you start to notice things are kind of not right, I'm not saying BBG is a problem. I'm sure there's plenty of people that use it and don't have disordered eating or a disordered relationship to exercise. People have come out to say that they had a disordered relationship to it. Anyway, it becomes very difficult to leave the community to say, oh, this isn't serving me anymore because you're afraid to not belong, which is what so much of this comes Mm. down to, the Mm -hmm. fear of not belonging. Yeah. I think that's such a good point. I think that comes up a lot, especially with a lot of, you know, programs that really focus highly on like, you know, dieting or weight loss and those kind of things offer like this community piece that I know for a lot of like, at least people who I've worked with has been, you know, one of the things that people miss often about those, those things too. So I think also, you know, being sure to follow as you're unfollowing these people, like follow more people who are promoting messages that you do agree with or that do make you feel really good. And if you don't know where to start with that, you can even like find some accounts that you do like and that do resonate with you and then either ask them or like see who they are following too to kind of like give yourself permission to like explore and and find those other people to be like that new community for you that's going to be more supportive and, and, you know, health promoting for you. Mm -hmm. I think I found that by following you, Brenna, and Lisa, y'all, it's a community where you start to notice who are they reposting? What are they sharing? And then through clicking on that, I find more people. And it's almost like, I'm like, what? This whole world of people, again, y'all are, you're new to follow to me, Brenna, and Lisa just found you last year, but we still it's don't like, know I'm how, like, right? I think I've, on Instagram, somebody, somebody reposted you. And then I started following you. And I was like, okay, this is, this is finally someone speaking to what I need to hear. And before that, I wasn't in that realm of followings. So I wasn't seeing y'all and that there's this community out there that is already 10 steps ahead of where I want to be. And I just feel like it's, it's empowering because like there's this movement happening and it's like, okay, I'm on board. Like, what do we need to do to make this happen? And for me, like I work in radio and I have endorsements that that I once would have said yes to that I'm now having to backtrack how I say, and I'm already kind of in a deal. And once it's up, like, I'm sorry, I'm not going to resign just because it sends a message that I don't, I don't want to put out there. And I didn't know I didn't because I didn't know any better. I thought because it was quote unquote good in my mind, Mm -hmm. or I was labeling it as that. But then I just realized, oh my gosh, for me personally, this is what has been a root of my problem for years, but I never knew it because of the restriction that it was causing. And then it ended me in this restriction binge cycle. But I honestly thought that's just how, I thought that was life. I thought that's how we lived. And even in, yes, I'm in radio, but we go to award shows. We're there on the red carpet. We do things or we're interviewing musicians and it's not, we're not behind a microphone all the time. Everything's especially with Facebook and Instagram, it's YouTube, it's visual. And there's this pressure that I see even in our culture. And maybe because I do work with a lot of musicians and follow them of like, okay, you know, just posting real quick and as innocent as it may seem, they're like, okay, just started. Basically, I'm going to drink water for three days before the award show. And then after the award show, you see them at a burger place getting that burger and fries that they wanted. And for me, that was so normal because that was me. And then now I can't even imagine living 
life that way. Like I just want it to be a Tuesday and it's like, okay, I've got a red carpet tomorrow. Okay, fine. Like my day doesn't change. Like it's, I put on my dress and I go do my thing and I'm just the same. There's this no, I was in a constant, gosh, ask my husband because he's been married me for 13 years and I'm finally just now finding this freedom. And he's like, hallelujah, praise God. Because <laughs> before any work thing, I was cleansing, detoxing, but you, you know, don't even have to be famous to experience that I because agree. I experienced it yeah. and I was no, I'm nobody. You know? Oh, and I'm not, I'm not famous. I'm not but saying I mean, that. You, know, but you don't have to be going to award shows to be right. thinking about it. It's like whatever right. your microcosmic version of that is, whether it's going to a wedding or an event or Friday night or, or Valentine's break. Day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or yeah, social, um, sorry, spring, spring break. break. Oh mm-hmm. my gosh. Yeah. In college for me, it was Halloween. Like it was like, right. you know, it's like put whatever we're saying, put it on your level to what to what it is, and you can be free of it regardless of where you are. Mm-hmm. I think what you do is, is so great, and by following you, I think you'll naturally start to curate a, you'll enter a new social media bubble and be create one of your own. Oh, well. I agree. Like, that's what I think that Brenna does and that you do, and so I would highly recommend if people are trying to sort through their Instagram and what they want their follows to look like that you can't go wrong with these two. Something I do want to, I'm scrolling through the Wellful since I'm on here. And I saw this, I saw this PSA you put up, Brenna, that says, PSA, it is not your obligation to be as small as possible. Take up less space, look or eat any specific way. And that's super powerful to me. I feel like we don't need to be small. I feel like this idea of like taking up space is so powerful too. Because I think it's, it's kind of interesting when you think of it in that context too, right? Of like, you know, like you're allowed to, like all of us are like allowed to take up space. And I think that's something that diet culture really, and so many other messages that we get, you know, messages as like women or, you know, all of these different things kind of combine in that, in that message of kind of like being small or being quiet and um, polite or, you know, right. Everything like not making like waves or all of these other things. Taking up space means like so many different things. Yeah. Well, I would like to thank you two for making waves in in my life and in this community because I feel like there probably is pushback at times. I mean, even Lisa and I wanted to have a disclaimer at the beginning of this little series because we knew sometimes people were going to have on or things we were going to say may not be um, something people are used to hearing, but I'm here for it. <laughs> Just a quick question while we have you. I know that you've talked about this a bunch before. How can people best respond to comments about weight or about food while they're on their journey to healing? So how can they deal with people in their lives that are maybe not on the journey yet or not looking to go on the journey? How can they best navigate that in person? It's hard. (laughs) But I think think kind of continuing to give yourself permission to set those boundaries and knowing that, like, I kind of repeat this, but, like, you, like— are the expert of your body, right? And I think that can be kind of powerful to remember. Like nobody else knows it better than you, no matter, you know, no matter what. So yeah, I think having some comments, like if someone is commenting on what you're eating, like saying something like, you know, I can, I can make choices about what I'm eating or, you know, it really doesn't make me feel great when you say that about my plate or, you know, sometimes you can, depending on the situation, you could even like, you know, use humor. I think that's something I always turn to. And I know that kind of varies on what people are comfortable with, but like, could be something like, I'm pretty sure I can like make decisions about what I eat. Like I'm an adult, that kind of a thing. Or you can kind of 
share different resources with somebody. I think that Smash the Wellness Industry article came out, I think, last year in New York Times. That's a great piece, too. It's kind of like an equalizer piece that is really kind of like an introduction. So for a lot of people who maybe aren't aware of the impact of these different conversations or of these topics, it can be kind of a good introduction piece for someone who may not realize the impact of their words. Or sharing an article like that, like Taylor Swift, there was an article that came out about her and her Americana piece recently. And I know for a lot of people that really resonated because it kind of was, you know, someone who you've seen and really admire. So having those articles or resources can be kind of helpful welcoming pieces. But then also setting the boundary and knowing that, like, you can always walk away from a situation or a conversation if people are talking about dieting, you know, at the dinner table or coworkers, and knowing that you can always opt out and walk away or saying something like, you know, that those, I don't really appreciate that comment or, or even something like if someone comments on your body size, like when you, in like a greeting, because I know that's really common to kind of greet somebody and be like, oh, you look X, Y, Z, whether it's like so great or like your weight has changed, saying like, I'm sure we have something better to talk about than our weight right now. Or, you know, I'm so happy to see you kind of commenting and focusing more on those other attributes that you really like and enjoy about people too, besides their weight. If I'm not looking to like get into it with somebody, which a lot of times it's not appropriate given the context of our relationship too, I'll either change the conversation completely or if somebody's having a conversation next to me and I know it's not appropriate for me to interject, I'm kind of just like repeating positive self-talk to myself. And it's not made up talk. It's just like, you know what you need right now. You know what you need right now isn't that. (laughs) And, you know, just kind of circling that. Yeah. Yeah. Like having like a couple, sometimes, especially before like an event or something like a holiday or like somewhere where you are kind of anticipating that coming up, you can like write down a couple different like reminders or screenshots and Instagram posts or something and just keep them ready on your phone for like reminders like I mean, that. Too. No like, one can refute diets like have never worked for me. So just being like, oh, well, that thanks for sharing. But diets have never worked for me can be pretty mm-hmm. <laughs> powerful because who's going to refute that? Mm-hmm. Right. Right. To- to throw that out there. Well, Brenna, thank you so much for coming on with us. We so appreciate your wisdom. So the theme of this episode is really about learning to clarify your values and check in with yourself, which is the work that most of us fail to do and therefore get really lost in the mix and the shuffle of dieting and bad body image and prioritizing those thoughts and those behaviors without the things that we truly believe in. So that's something that happened to me for sure. I lost a lot of friends along the way. And how was your family, do you think, affected by your lifestyle? I think that even for the most part to this day, you know, they actually don't even know that I suffered when I was suffering because it was always brushed under the rug with like, oh, she's a dietitian. She likes healthy food. Oh, she just likes weird food that we don't like. One thing about me is my weight never changed. So I never lost weight and I never gained weight despite binging, despite um, restricting even. So both ends of the spectrum and therefore nobody ever questioned it as a problem. I know that my sister-in-law will say now she laughs and says, oh, I'm glad we don't have to pretend to like your food anymore. But the deep struggle and the pain and the worthiness and attention that I was seeking, I know they certainly enjoy me more now. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that my family might say the same. I mean, there was times I was just a real Debbie Downer. I was selfish. And I would judge what they were eating. And so, Lisa, when you asked me to think about what I value, family is at the top of the list. And so knowing that 
I made my family uncomfortable or missed out on certain social aspects with my family or certain recipes or food or just sitting around the table and having a good time because I was preoccupied being stressed out about the food is, ugh, it's such a bummer, but I'm not going to live in that. That Mm -hmm. is behind me and we're going to move forward. And now I know that I value that and I need to put emphasis on that, right? Exactly. And I know that you have value homework for us. Yeah. So taking time to clarify your values is easy to say, but I wanted to take it a step further and provide you with a worksheet that's actually in Fork the Noise Fundamentals. That is my online course for learning to listen to your body. But kind of step one to all of this is learning about who you are so that your behaviors align. And it's easier to say, okay, why am I not going to a family dinner to get a workout in when really my family is what I should be prioritizing? When you see it spelled out more oftentimes than not, we see that the things we value, we're not giving any attention to. So you can go to forkthenoise.com forward slash values, and you will get a value clarification work through and take time as much as you need to work through this. And always know that you can Print a couple of these and use them throughout the year, making sure that your behaviors continue to reflect who you want to be in this world. Love that. Okay. So that's your homework for this episode. Again, if you missed the first episode, go back and listen to that. There's some homework at the end of that one. If you're in this and you're following us along every episode, then we'll see you next Saturday here for episode three with more stories, more experts, and more talk. Okay. Just kidding. That's not the real ending. If you listen to last week's episode, then you know I, at the end of each episode, I'm going to be doing an additional ending that didn't get recorded when we did this together. Lisa and I recorded this series in early March and coronavirus was not crazy like it is right now. And so I felt like I need to go back on to the end of each episode each week before it loads and do a new little ending to address Uh, what's going on in the world because it would just be weird not to. And I feel like there's a lot of stuff online right now uh, regarding weight and diet cultures totally taking over. So Lisa and I chatted a little bit before I came on to record. And these are some things that we thought could be helpful to mention for you to keep in mind right now. So the jokes about the COVID-19 and reference to the freshman 15, while it comes off jokingly for some, which for me, they're not offensive. And I will admit I have laughed at some and thought about reposting. And I'm so glad that I'm in this and I'm learning and I'm continuing to grow and look out for people and not wanting to offend anybody or trigger anybody unknowingly. Thankfully, I know not to repost that. But I think if I wasn't in this and being so aware of diet culture and I'm lucky to be surrounded by the wisdom of a lot of the guests that we've had on and Lisa, I know better now. And so don't feel bad if you have posted any of that stuff or reposted it. This is not a shame place. This is just to help educate and inform how that might be hurtful and offensive and triggering to other people. And this podcast is specifically for people that are in the struggle. So I'm talking to you and we need to be mindful of other people that might be going through it like us. So again, while it comes off jokingly for some, it's instilling fear for many. And again, it's allowing diet culture to become the focus when in fact, our bodies and minds, they need love and attention right now more than ever, not any of that junk. So I'm choosing not to participate in these jokes. I know Lisa's choosing not to participate. A lot of our 
guests. I've seen them online saying they're not going to, because again, we don't want to unknowingly offend anybody or contribute to fat phobia. So just something to think about when it comes to the content that you repost or that you put on your page. Uh, Some other things to note is that, you know, right now those with disordered eating history, it can be normal to return to restrictive eating in some way when anxiety peaks. And if you're noticing that diet culture has a handle on you right now and it's making your anxiety peak more than the COVID-19 or the coronavirus, whatever you call it, well, that can be a red flag to look out for, for sure. So try to evaluate where your anxiety is really coming from. And remember that we're, we're living organisms, guys. We're people, we're humans, we're, we're, we're alive. We need food even when you're not working out or moving as much. We burn calories by reading, watching Netflix, laying in bed, doing nothing. Our body is burning calories and needs food. So during this uncertainty, it might be helpful to have some sort of a schedule. And that might mean scheduling out mealtimes to make sure that you're eating enough. Waking up and going to bed at the same time, because you definitely should be getting some good sleep right now if you can. And then penciling out some time for self-care. That's super important. And I'll leave that up to you Uh, every day. That might look different for you, but make sure you're getting some self-care in there as well. So that is officially the end of today's episode, but I guess not really, because as you heard in my story that I shared earlier in the episode, I wanted to tack on Lisa and I's chat with Catherine DeFada. It's something we recorded for this series, but ended up using in my Four Things podcast as a teaser for what was to come in this series because it was a longer chat than we anticipated and we didn't want to cut it down in any way. So we thought, well, let's just throw it up as a, in a different episode and make it a teaser of what's to come. And so now we're putting it back in the series here in episode Two, uh, and we're. I'm going to play it for you now because I feel like it just helps round out some of my story, and it could be helpful for some of you to hear that weren't listening to my podcast a few weeks ago, or you weren't subscribed and you know nothing about it. I would hate for you to miss out on our chat with her. She's a therapist. Again, her name's Catherine Defada, and her Instagram is at Three Chords Therapy, and uh, she's awesome. So here is our little chat with Catherine. So we've got Catherine DeFada in the studio with us. So you're a guest that's actually here in person. A lot of our interviews have been over the phone just because of where people are in the country, but you're right here in Nashville with us, which is super cool. And you're a therapist here in town, but you specialize in eating disorders. I do. And so I talked about it on the podcast and you listened to Four Things with Amy Brown and you sent me a note and said that if you could be a part of it, just let you know. And we started emailing back and forth. And I was like, yes, can you come into the studio and and let's record some stuff. So uh, just before we hit record, we were having an off-air conversation about eating disorders being an addiction. And when I'm trying to talk to my husband about it or when I was eating a lot and I just felt like I couldn't stop and he didn't understand, I would say, and I don't know if I was right in how I was saying it at all, but to me, it felt like, I was like, I don't know. It's like an alcoholic can't stop drinking. I was like, but 
you can take alcohol out of your life and survive. Like with food, I can't eliminate food from my life because you need food to survive. I just remember that being like some language I would throw out. I'm sure I heard it somewhere. <laughs> but that's, I mean, that's comparing alcoholism is seen as, as an addiction. Yeah. So one of the things that you asked me was, what's the difference between self-work and therapy with an actual therapist? And I thought about it and I actually like had a different answer. And then I was like, that's not right. The difference is the relationship and the relationship between a therapist and a client is like the number one predictor of if it's going to be successful. Like if you hate your therapist, you probably won't get a lot done. So that goes into just attachment theory and and what that means. And do you guys know what that is? No. No. Attachment theory comes from this guy. His name is John Bowlby. And he was doing research in orphanages and he was noticing that like these babies that were getting everything that they needed, like shelter, food, water, they were dying or they were getting really, really sick. But there was no reason for it except they weren't being touched. So there's no touch at all, which is crazy. And what he came up was that a relationship is necessary to survive. He did a lot of research and there's a lot of stuff that I won't go into because it might be a little bit boring, but he came up with these three attachment styles, secure, anxious, avoidant. And we get those attachment styles based on the relationships we usually have with our primary caregiver. So if I have a really great loving environment and all my needs are met all the time, I'm going to have a secure attachment. But And that's the majority of people, but also I see it as on a spectrum too. The majority of people do have a secure yes. relationship? Yeah, that's what they say in the research. Yeah. But yeah. also, You're using air quotes. Like, I'm doing air quotes and they can't see. see. Yeah. <laughs> that's what they say. However, I think really people are on a spectrum with this. Okay. So, and then anxious attachment would be when sometimes their needs are being met, sometimes they're not. And so you don't know whether to trust or not to trust. And then avoidant is when your needs aren't really being met. And so you kind of develop this idea of like, I got to go do everything on my own. Like I got to go um, figure everything out on my own. Okay. I'm going to interject just a second. Cause I do have two adopted children from Haiti and some people may know that some people may not, depending on what they've listened to. And I had not heard and described as attachment theory, mm-hmm. but I know that my kids and I've witnessed it. They have attachment disorder. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. And the lack of stimulation mm-hmm. that my son had, I now see how it comes out in certain times, like how mm-hmm. he responds and reacts. And then even my daughter, I'm just, this is just, is this even yeah. the same thing? Yes. Like the yeah, atta- yeah. Okay. So I'm just making sure on the same page. Cause I also want to be aware of like now that I'm what their primary caregiver that I'm focused on whatever they're going to need from me, mm-hmm. but there's already walls built. There's already, mm-hmm. my daughter came here at 10. She's 12 now, but day one from her arrival was resistance. I can handle this on my own. I don't need you. She would basically give us the Heisman anytime. I mean, it's been two years of breaking it down and we're finally getting there, but there's still testing. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't really trust you. Mm-hmm. Are you going to really love me? Mm-hmm. What about if I do this? You still yes. going to love me? What if I, okay, I'm going to try this out. And so my husband and I just have to remain consistent. And so, yes, at first, when you talked about attachment theory, it was like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, but yes, I do. Then I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> I do know this. But I'm also trying to think of my childhood and how it was with that's, my yeah. that's where it parents. Me. So think like, about wow. this. You've talked about your own like issues with food and disordered eating and all that. I have that. So think about, as I explain this, 
kind of where your story pops up. Also, this is going to be helpful because you're probably doing the things you need to do with your children without even knowing that you're doing them just because you're a, a good caring person. So you can develop a certain attachment style. Good news is it's not static, it's fluid. So going back to just describing this and how it relates to what we were talking about in the beginning is people develop these attachments and they're all based on feeling like loved, like you belong. And so I have developed my own theory that we all are born with these two desires to be ourselves and then to have love and belonging. And throughout our lives, the desire for love and belonging becomes very, 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 very strong. And so we drop parts of ourselves or we pick parts of ourselves or pick things up that aren't really parts of ourselves to get that love and belonging. And so that's when the addiction comes in. I'll use an example from my life to explain this. So I never felt like I like really, really, really fit in to or had like a thing or was special in certain parts of my friend groups in certain areas in my family. And so I started to do things to get me attention. I attributed that attention to love, right? I always say like any attention is good attention. So going back to what you said, what's the difference between therapy and self-work is a therapist is what we call a secure base, which helps somebody develop a secure attachment style. So somebody's going to come into my office, probably not knowing that they have any of this or any kind of trauma. I'm going to be that person like you're explaining with your daughter. What if I do this? Will you still love me? What if I yell at you? Can I still come back? What if I miss a session? What if I tell you that you're wrong? What if I disagree with you? Um, What if I act out? What if I relapse in what you told me not to do? Are you still going to let me come back in? And the answer is always yes, 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 with safe boundaries. And it helps them learn that like, hey, I don't have to be a certain way. I can show up as I am and like I can find love. So when you say you were doing things to get attention, Mm -hmm. what were those things? So it depends on which part of my life. (laughs) Well, let's go ahead and talk about the eating Eating disorder. disorder. So in college, yeah, it's easy for me to talk about this now. I didn't know that this was happening. No clue, which most people don't. But I started with a diet counting calories. And again, in my family, all my siblings went and played D1 sports and I just like went to college. And so I felt like I was missing something because I didn't have anything that my parents would really brag that much about. No fault to them. My parents are great. And so I went on this diet, started losing all this weight. I was getting tons of attention, like tons. You look so good. This, this, whatever guys like started talking to me more. And so I attribute that to that of like, okay, now I fit in, now I belong. Belonging is love. I'm good. And then I became a shell of a human. Tap into that a little bit more. What were you feeling at that time? Like what? I mean, first you're on a high. What does it mean to be a shell? Because you're certainly not a shell today. Come in with vibrance and (laughs) you're radiant. Yes. Yeah. Um, So just so that people, because really we're doing this so people don't feel alone. And I feel like with each person that's sharing part of their real story, which you just did, somebody's relating and they're like, Mm -hmm. wait, tell me more. Yeah. I would say people would always describe me as like loud and bubbly and like fun. I'm a seven on the Enneagram. Yeah. So that, which I didn't know what the Enneagram was back then. So that's how I always was. So when I started restricting my food, I ended up restricting every single part of my life because I couldn't go to that party because what if I drank alcohol and there's calories in alcohol? And then what if I got drunk and then I wanted to eat something and I ate something I shouldn't eat? That crippled me or I can't go to that that restaurant because I can't eat anything there. Then people are going to ask me like, why aren't you eating? And I'm going to have to come up with some excuse or I can't go to that thing at night because I have to get up and work out at 6 a.m. and I need my energy. And so I started cutting things out of my life. I remember 
So this started my junior year of college. That summer, junior to senior year, I like never left my parents' house when I came home. And I never saw any of my friends from high school, which we were always very close. I remember I did one thing. I went to my best friend from high school's birthday party and then started at her house and they all went out. I think it might have been her 21st birthday. And I went home after her house. Everybody else went out and I went home because I was like, I can't do that. So the thing that got me all this attention all of a sudden, then I was like, what's the point of the attention? Because I'm not letting myself engage with anybody. And then I came back that next year, my senior year, and I didn't do anything. Like, didn't go, I was in a sorority. I like would skip some of our date parties or I would go. I remember one time I also like was really into school. But I like went to a party. It was a swap. So it's one that you would like dress up at, like and wear a costume. And I like loved doing that. And I like took my note cards to the bar and like studied for my test. You just like withdrew and lost yeah. interest in all the things that you love to do. Mm-hmm. My friends did not love that. So that's a part where mm-hmm. that's just part of your story mm-hmm. of what you did to get attention, to feel belonging. But then you realize like it's kind of like it goes up, up, up. And it's like, this is where I'm getting belonging and love. And then all of a sudden you just, it's like we just, it, I think it happened to all of us. And you crash mm-hmm. and burn because you realize you have nothing around you. And what is this for? Yeah. So then what do you do? Well, and I love looking back at this because I don't know y'all's experiences, but from my experience, I had no clue that I was struggling. So like not a clue. I thought I was like on top of the world. Like this actually makes you want to cry. But my senior year, I thought that I was killing it. Like I'd gotten into all these graduate programs. I was like going to go do all these things. And looking back, like another thing I did that I have so much grief over is I skipped my last date party ever to come back to Nashville and run the half marathon. I can run that marathon whenever I want. I can never go back and have my last party with my best friends. I did not know that. I, I still was like, yeah, I'd rather go run this marathon. This is my lifestyle. I'm healthy. I don't like to drink. Mm-hmm. Almost like this grandiose sense of self. Mm-hmm. The, the healthy yes. high horse. That was yes. so us. Yeah. Yes. Coming up for yeah. Oh my gosh. All and the, I yeah. probably was, we're judgy. I was a brat. Yeah. Yes. Okay. <laughs> like, probably because, yeah. yeah, because I Me would too. judge what people are eating. You're going to eat that. And I'm like, in my head, I wish I could eat that. Like, I wish I could eat that. But I have eating disorders. We talk a lot about how you have so much control. I had no control. None. Right. Well, it was like, not like I could eat that. Like, wow, look at me. I have so much willpower for not eating that. Yeah. But I don't really think I did have willpower because if I had willpower, I would eat a donut. But that's what people would say to me. I'm like, I wish I could be like Catherine. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you don't want to be like me. Yeah. I know because they don't really know the struggle. That's yeah. why it's important. And we'll reiterate it now since it's kind of coming up. That's why it's important. You never know what's going on inside someone's body. Yeah. You might think it's all, they've got it all figured out and their life is together. And then you can reinforce their behavior by complimenting something about their body. And then that keeps them on that hamster mm-hmm. wheel. And really, you have no idea you contributed to the problem yeah. just by giving yeah. a compliment. We've been trying to just get it into people and even myself oh. over and over to stop complimenting on people's yeah. bodies. There's so many other things that we could probably compliment that like do that's not necessary. So can I tell a story yeah. real quick? So this is why I started to look at before I really got into being like a eating disorder therapist, this is like, I have shame about this now, but again, I'm trying to not have that. I went to grad school. I went to Vanderbilt in Nashville and thinking I was going to be eating disorder therapist. And guess what I wanted to specialize in? I wanted to work with specifically binge eating disorder and help them lose weight. 
Which is not how you do. That's not. Well, okay. I could understand not understanding. Not understanding. Yes. Now yeah. I'm like, oh my gosh. Maybe explain why though that. That wouldn't doesn't be. Yeah. That may not. Hand in hand. Yeah. Because okay. I know more of that because I've been doing, I've been working alongside people like yeah. Lisa where y'all understand why that would be bad, but someone else might not get why that's right. probably not like the best thing. So it's not about the weight. And so with binge eating disorder, there's something else going on. And if I help them lose weight, their issues aren't going away. Like the reason that they're binging, which would be the reason why any of us do a behavior that we would classify as an addiction. It's not about the alcohol. It's not about the food. It's not about any of that. It's about what's underneath of it. And so, yeah, it might be a side effect that if these people do the work and I help them through whatever it is that they're trying to work through, they might lose weight, but that's not the goal. Because if I just take the weight away, everything else is still there. And most people that are in it don't see it as a underlying problem. Like they see it as either a binge problem. I can't stop when I eat. Or they see it as a weight problem. I'm overweight because I eat. Mm -hmm. Not going any deeper into why. Do you think that there's anything to the, the binging and it being like in the brain? We've touched on brain over binge. But there's there's obviously with what you're saying with the addiction at all coming back to attachment and love, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So it's like all goes back to some of that mm-hmm. in a way. But for me, I mean, I know that I had issues with my dad leaving when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know that I also was introduced to dieting at an extremely young age. And I know when I started dieting and then that led to restriction and binging. But I didn't really realize I was binging at the time. Because right. I didn't know really, I mean, it's in high school. But then I knew I would overeat. So then I would purge. But it wasn't all of the time, but I knew that it was wrong. Even so that I went to my mom and said, I need help. I'm throwing up and I don't know where this came from or why, but I, I need help with this. So then she got me into therapy and then that led to therapy all through high school and college. But it was always just focused on my dad having left. Mm -hmm. Nothing ever resonated with me. And then I quit throwing up for years But what I realized in there is I was still binging the whole time. But again, I knew that it was not right because I was like, I just went to literally like four different fast food restaurants in like one stop. Like that's not normal. Mm -hmm. So, or if I was on a road trip somewhere, I would stop at like multiple gas stations and like just eat the entire two hours if that was my drive from Austin to College Station, Mm -hmm. which is where I went to Texas A&M. So I remember a lot of those road trips was I ate the entire time whether it was a gas station, Sonic, like I had different stops and I would just go through and be like, okay. And then the next day I would just do slim fast or something. But it never, I was still in therapy at that point, but it never was getting anywhere other than somehow I just stopped the throwing up and it was gone, but I kept the binging. And then when I read Brain Over Binge, I've been telling Lisa, like it just made sense to me. Mm -hmm. She talks about rewiring your brain and that you just go to a binge and you have to start denying the binges because I started restricting at such a young age. It trained my brain that I it didn't know when I was going to get food again. So it kept forcing me to overeat and then I would binge. And so I started implementing that of over a year ago and that worked for me. And that was the first thing where it really made sense. Now I'm sure there's underlying issues with yeah. what's going on, but I do want to talk to you about how that worked for me. But about five years ago when my mom died, even though I had not purged, in 12 years, I had binged, but not purged. The day after my mom died, I ate dinner and then I had to go throw it up. Mm-hmm. 
And I literally, and it was not an easy thing. Yeah. It was my sister's birthday the day after my mom died and her in-laws decided to get a food truck. And we have, I mean, otherwise, I mean, there's food at the house everywhere, but we just were not eating. But then it was like my sister's birthday. So I felt like I had to eat from the food truck and I had to eat the cake. So I ate it. And then something about me, literally, and there were so many people at my sister's house. I went over to a neighbor's guest house and I threw up in their bathroom. Mm. <laughs> like it wasn't easy for me to like make this You're happen. Desperate. But somehow I, f- I was desperate to get that food out of my body. And I hadn't even overeaten. Yeah. But and that started it again, just like that. It was back. And I probably, it was a daily thing. Then it was like every other day. Then it was like, and Isn't now it sound now that, you know, you brought up that it's eating disorders can be addictions. It sounds like an alcoholic returning to alcohol. Yes. Where all of a sudden you need that whatever and you go and find it and then, okay, I'll just do it this one time. And then you slowly kind of trickle back into the mm-hmm. same thing. Okay. But I don't even know that I was like, I felt like it was an out-of-body experience when I was oh. doing it. I don't oh, think yeah. I had the rational rationale to be like, okay, it's just going to be this one time. I was just like, I did it. And then I was like, what was that? And I was so freaked out by it that just like I went to my mom in high school, I went to my husband almost immediately. And I'm like, here's the deal. Okay you've been married to me and I haven't thrown up our entire marriage. So you don't know this side of me, but now I'm terrified and it's here. And I feel like an alcoholic that has just lost their chip. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what I said to him. And he was like, okay, well, we can do this. Like whatever you need. And I would say there was a lot of times where after, I mean, he would come home and he'd be like, how was your day? And I would be like, even a year after my mom died or two years, Mm -hmm. there would still be discussions. How was your day? I'd say my day was fine, except for I threw up. Mm-hmm. You know, and I would be able, I'm thankful for a relationship where I could be honest with him about that, but I still was so perplexed why it was happening. And now I've been over a year That's without awesome. anything, binges or purges. Mm-hmm. So I feel that, but I have to share with you a revelation I had with Lisa, but I don't even know if it makes sense. And since you're a therapist, <laughs> I'm going to take advantage. Okay. Do I need to pay you for the hour? Yeah. <laughs> I, I told Lisa, I said, it just didn't, I went to therapy. Obviously I did EMDR after my mom died because it's very traumatic for me. Mm-hmm. She did not die. It was not easy. She had cancer. I saw a lot that I, I shouldn't see mm-hmm. and laid with her in her final breath me and my sister both. And then, I don't know if this is healthy or not, but we probably laid with her for about an hour after that. <laughs> the coroner people were like, uh, we're here. Time to load her up. And we're like, we're not done yet. So, you know, it, whatever that looks like for you, it, that's what we needed. But we definitely, my sister and I both saw a lot and it was traumatic. And then, you know, here I am the next day throwing up the food and I'm not knowing why. And I'm telling this to my therapist and she's like, well, that's trauma. And the last trauma you had in your life was when your dad left. And that was when your younger eating disorder kind of started. I'm like, well, not exactly. But I just couldn't wrap my head around the fact that like that would just make me do it. But then I had this thought because I think something Lisa talked about or somebody talked about that like I really felt because I was grieving. And this also could be related to attention since you said that. Mm-hmm. And this is just me having to get completely honest and almost like embarrassed that like, what? Because it's not like it was a very conscious thought out decision. Like, mm-hmm. oh, I need attention. So this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. This is almost like five years later, I'm just having to look back and be like, oh, yuck. Was that really what this was? Because what makes sense to me now is that I felt like I was grieving. And if you're grieving, you're supposed to lose weight. If you're grieving, 
you're not supposed to have food because you're sad and sad people don't eat and sad people get skinny. And if I get skinny, I get attention, which is exactly what happened. I mean, there was not a single person in my life that did not comment on my body like about a month after my mom died because I did get very thin and I would weigh myself every single day. Mm -hmm. I would drink juice in the morning, purge, whatever. I would do yoga twice a day. Also, I was trying to keep busy to not think about my mom. I would do wine and Xanax for bed. So it would knock me out and I wouldn't think about food. And I would, but nobody knew this was happening to me, but I would still come to work the next day. And someone from would be visiting from, you know, another city that hadn't seen me in a while and be like, oh my gosh, Amy, it looks so good. And then I'd be like, thank you. And then, but I'd be like, yes, I'm grieving. (laughs) I'm doing a good job grieving. I'm doing a good job grieving because I lost my mom and I need you to recognize that I'm sad. My skinny represents my sadness and that gives me attention. Yeah. Sounds very twisted and messed up to say out loud. I I feel that makes more sense to me than when the therapist told me she thought like a trauma capsule opened in my head. And because that's how I dealt with my dad leaving, that's immediately the route my my, my brain was going to go to deal with losing my mom. And I just don't know that yeah, that makes it. sense to me. Thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. I think it, your therapist could be right. There, part of it could be, this is the thing with therapy and like men, there's no just like one way. So that's why, I mean, eating disorders and addiction in general is hard because I can't just say it's every time because of this. A lot of times it's because of this. There could have been the trauma part, but I think what you're talking about it's probably attached to your trauma of not getting the attention and the love and the belonging from your dad. And then now this is like your mom, like your secure base, mm-hmm. right? Your person. Mm-hmm. And then she's gone. And then like, who's my person and who's going to recognize or who's going to know what I need or who's going to, all of that comes up of like, you lost your secure base. So what do I do? You're sad, right? Part of it is I hear you saying like, I want people to see my sadness I think part of it also is like, I don't want to feel sad either. And so what can I do to shove down all of these feelings? Because it feels good when I'm doing this. Mm-hmm. It's as twisted as it is. Like it feels good to perch. It feels good to go on a run for two hours. It feels for a period of it time. Good to even just binge. It I mean, feels good to binge. Oh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. For a period until it doesn't. Of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Until it doesn't. And at yeah. the beginning, yes, it was like this high and this ride and until it got messy and it was just exhausting and it was like I can't keep up or if I would try to throw up and it didn't work and I was like oh my gosh I just ate all that food like and it's not coming up like it was just tell me about like the embarrassment of like this is so messed up I feel embarrassed that this is what I did I think because I could be wrong on this but if we're for the sake of our conversation of viewing uh, eating disorder as an addiction and alcohol's addiction I feel like for lack of a better word, being addicted to cocaine or alcohol is a little more sexy. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's the right word. Just for the sake of this, I'm just going to say binging a bunch of food mm-hmm. and then throwing it up for whatever the reason is, is disgusting. To me, I'm never, I don't look at, and it could just be me thinking that about myself. I'm not saying that about anybody else. I'm saying it literally about myself. I'm sure there's shame associated with anything that you're addicted to, but I feel like, oh, gosh, if I was addicted to cocaine, nobody would be like, oh, you're disgusting. They'd be like, oh, wow, she, that's crazy. She needs to get some help. Yeah. But I'm like, if they knew what I was addicted to and that I was doing this, they'd be like, she's so disgusting. So that's my own thought process is it's not and as... You putting it out here right now on this is breaking down that factor of shame. And I think like even 
on Instagram, like anxiety became so popular to talk about, but like depression was in the cloud of like this shit thing you can't talk about. And I recently talked about something that I never said either, which was laxative abuse and flooded with messages, not comments on my private, on my public Instagram page, private messages of me too. So there is something super secretive still about the purging, whether it is up or down, that people are still not acknowledging. But you right here saying it is showing that there is no disgust to it. There is no shame, especially you as Amy Brown. Right, because I wouldn't want anybody else sharing. I would say that same thing to them. But we're breaking it down. You just broke it down for so so many people. I'm becoming more vocal about my story. I think that on the radio years ago, it maybe come up that I had dealt with an eating disorder Mm -hmm. in high school and college. It was kind of like I could relate on that level. Never would talk about the issues with food or binging or obsession, food obsession Mm -hmm. for all these years. That just doesn't come up organically. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Then after the stuff with my mom, oh my gosh, I kept, I mean, I told my husband about it, but I was very private about it. Like very until now recently, I feel like I'm in a better place and I don't want people to feel alone and I need to start sharing that part of my story. So a lot of things I haven't said out loud yet, like what I just shared, I haven't fully said out loud in the whole, in its entirety. And so, and as I don't even, I'm still probably not all giving it all. I feel good. I mean, I feel like I've been like, there's a couple of times where I'm like, okay, smiling inside because it does feel good. There's a little bit of a high from it, but also I was at a low where I was taken back to it and I was very sad for myself and I was about to cry, but trying to keep it together for the sake of the being one of the hosts here, (laughs) but in crying's okay. I have no issue crying on air, done that plenty of times. So I'm I'm sad for that, that part of me. I want to tell you a story. Okay. One, I have to say this because this is huge. This is a side note, but when people talk about this stuff, I mean, what you were saying, it is huge because yeah, people will talk about anorexia and restricting Uh and my exercise addiction. They won't talk about the other stuff and it's not any better at all. And what you're talking about is shame. I feel ashamed for what I did. And what shame feeds off of is your silence and secrets. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about it more, the shame kind of gets, you starve the shame. So the shame dies. And so that's a big deal because I'm sure there's 1 million, bajillion, trillion people that are going to hear that and be like, oh my gosh, I felt that way too. Is it okay for me to talk about this? I think I'm going to try it. The other part is, this is the story I was going to tell 15 minutes ago, but I'm glad I'm telling it mm-hmm. now because there's this doctor, his name is Dr. Gabor Mate, and he does a lot of research and stuff around addiction. He was working with heroin addicts and he was trying to figure out, he was working in a center where harm reduction. So it's like, we're not going to, you're not going to get sober. We're going to teach you how to responsibly use mm-hmm. But he was going around and interviewing these men and women of like, why are you, why do you use heroin? We know that's bad. We know that can kill you. And he went to this one guy and he described him the way I remember him describing him is as this, like, almost like he would look like a big bouncer at like a club with like bald head, big guy, tattoos, like tough. And he said, can you tell me what heroin does for you? Like, why do you use it? And he said, I don't really know how to describe it, but have you ever been sick? And your mom puts you on her lap and she wraps you up in a blanket and she starts feeding you chicken noodle soup. He was like, that's what heroin feels like. So this guy concluded, oh, love, 
Like that's what heroin feels like, love. It feels like a warm Safety. hug. Mm-hmm. And so I tell that story because like there is so much shame and like, why do I do these things that are so bad? And I'm like, what, what's wrong with me is what I hear all the time. Like, Catherine, what is wrong with me? And I'm like, nothing is wrong with you. There's actually something right with you. Like, Amy, there is something right with you. The fact that you're like, I, there's something wrong with me. I want to feel better. I need to go do this thing that I know that used to help me feel better. That means that there's something right with you that you are trying to find. Like we all need attention. We all need love. We all need belonging. We are born attached to our mothers. Like we need attachment. We're born that way. And so I just say that because I think a lot of people think to themselves like, what is wrong with me? Like, why can't I stop? It's like, because you're a healthy human that wants to get better. And thank God that you did that rather than like just being like, take me away life. Like, yeah, and you turn to your husband too, which is yeah. like telling, I think, I mean, I'm not the yeah. therapist, but no. like that's your secure attachment now. Can you say yeah. that? Can you have yeah. a secure With any, it can be any. It can be anybody. Yeah. That's your secure attachment. So it's like, help me. Well, thank you for letting me talk through that. Yeah. That I session. I feel like we just made a lot of clarity that it, we needed. Yeah. I didn't know where where we would go with that for sure. But I think that this is, how do you feel, Lisa? Do you have anything you want to add? <laughs> From your I think that world? the audience will feel like I did where we might not have your exact story or maybe you do. There's plenty of people who have, have purged for that exact reason. But I feel like I've made headway in my understanding of myself <laughs> far beyond my even years in therapy just mm-hmm. by understanding the importance of secure attachment and personally not having that growing up either mm-hmm. despite what it looked like. Yeah. Um, and how we go about seeking attention because we're... Mm scared not we don't feel safe and there's a million ways to do that but for a large majority of us with the addition of the emphasis on thin equals loved equals health equals applause Mm -hmm. it's an easy one kind of right next to it so what do you do with your clients Mm -hmm. what is something we can can leave is like is there like an activity or uh, like affirmations or something you encourage them to do that, those that are listening that might be some of the stuff we've talked about today is resonating with them. Like, yeah. is there like some stuff they can, like a piece of homework or something? My gut says, if this is really resonating with somebody, I want them to reach out and go to therapy. That could be great yeah. advice. That might be <laughs> and, it because some people see that there's shame in therapy and mm-hmm. we should make sure that we're here to say that there's not. Yeah, there is 100%. nothing wrong with that at all whatsoever. And but, something that you say on your Instagram all the time that I am not a therapist, but I've been in therapy my whole life is there doesn't have to be something something wrong with you to go to therapy Mm -hmm. yeah so even if you don't identify with the purging or even an eating disorder and you're just listening to this I mean I have found that my most profoundly huge steps forward in Mm -hmm. therapy have been on days where I didn't come discussing a trauma Mm -hmm. or anything relevant to my life I think it's just a tool to better get to know your total being. And that is profoundly huge in how it will affect everything in your life. What about a piece of homework for people um, that you had said earlier is, you know, which so second nature for us to comment on somebody's body. What are some things that people can maybe for the next week work on? I believe in like human connection. I think Mm -hmm. the more we talk to people and out loud, the more connected we feel like being in an Uber even. And Mm -hmm. it's so easy to just be on your phone the whole time, but even interacting with an Uber driver or taxi driver. I live in the city. What are ways that people can compliment people this week that are non-appearance based? Yeah. How can we push them to talk to people and say things that they, what are some, some things we can say to start conversation with strangers or loved ones? You know what I, I want to come back. This actually comes from your last week's episode. 
Um, what did Kelsey say about if you think it and it's nice, say it? Oh, if it's mm-hmm. kind, say it's it. kind, say it. So just to clarify, since this is a completely, this is a different series, but, and it's airing in April, but I do have, I had an interview back in March with Kelsey Ballerini on Mm -hmm. the four things podcast. So you're referencing something that's who said it just so that we were just talking about empowering women. And Kelsey was just saying, you know, one thing I've learned is if it's kind, say it, like, Mm -hmm. who cares if you know the person or if you don't know them, if it's kind, if you think it, if you think it and it's kind, say Say it. it. That's exactly what she said. So I would say that with a caveat, if it's about the shape of their body. <laughs> so, um, because again, you never know if that is a point of contention for somebody. But I, one of the things that I've worked on, because I actually am like a introverted extrovert, which doesn't make a lot of sense. I think um, I am too. Okay. Mm-hmm. So also. yeah, okay. We all are. <laughs> but like, I sometimes don't, I like go into a place and I'll like think all of these things about, I won't ever say anything because I'll just kind of keep to myself and wait for somebody to approach me. But I think something that we can work on is like when we see somebody and if we're just happy to see somebody say, it's good to see you. Like I've missed you means a lot to me. Or rather than being like, oh my God, girl, you look so good. You look so happy. I think that a lot of the time when we do compliment somebody's weight or body change, it's because we've become so that's, this is an okay thing to say to somebody that you might not even know. Mm-hmm. And so you might actually be thinking this person looks happy. Yeah. But it's a weird thing to say, hey, girl, you look happy. So let me say, did you lose weight? Like, I think that yeah. we actually are seeing, Amy, again, going back to the radiance in people. But it might feel strange to say you look radiant because it's not a, a normal mm-hmm. exchange. Like, you look good, right? Like, yeah. So I think diving into your psyche yeah. of, okay, maybe you think this person looks good. That's the first thing. Why do they look good? What are they, they giving off? They're fitting the standards of what yeah. society tells us looks good. Yeah. Because if society didn't say that, like, what would we think? Like, I always say we are the decider of our own opinions. So we get to actually decide that, like, which a lot of people would be like, yeah, duh. But then I'm like, well, do you think that because the person next to you thinks that? Or do you think that because you really think that about yourself mm-hmm. or about other people? And I use the example of, I pulled out a peanut butter sandwich and started eating it and you were like, ew, peanut butter. But I'd be like, I don't like it anymore either. <laughs> it's the same thing as like, if somebody's like, I don't like your shirt. Like, yeah. well, I, you're allowed to still like it. If somebody thinks that you look whatever, you can still think you look good. If society says that you are not. Right. What- we need to stop questioning ourselves yeah. based off of others opinions, yeah. whether it's as profound as your body or insignificant as your shirt right. or peanut butter sandwich. Or peanut butter. Catherine, thank you for coming to talk so with us. if you us. think it and it's kind, <laughs> say it, which yeah. comes from both Catherine Doesn't and... Doesn't come from me. I can't take credit. Yeah, Kelsey, the, yeah. Kelsey it said it, but I don't that's know if the, she said it, she got it from somewhere. Yeah. Or, I always say, make it easy to be kind to yourself. So going along with that is like, make it easy to be kind to other people too. Like mm-hmm. all you have to do is go up to somebody and say, hi, how are you? And you can start a conversation that could make somebody's day. Exchanging a smile every now and yeah. then. Yeah. People may not remember what you say, but they remember how you make them feel. Mm-hmm. Amen. Good one. Mm-hmm. Okay. Catherine, let's throw out your Instagram yeah. do, so people can follow you. Can you say it real quick? Yeah. It's at three chords therapy. So three is spelled like the word. T-H-R-E. <laughs> Yeah. And then my website is threechordstherapy.com too. Perfect. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us. Thank you. It was fun. All right. This sun season, evolve your sun care with new Banana Boat 360 coverage. 
with Advanced Control Mist. It's a new way to spray. It's an all-new bottle for an all-new mist experience that smells great and is incredibly light on your skin. You can even customize your spray. Like to cover targeted areas, you just tap the trigger lightly or you can pull the trigger fully for a long, continuous spray, ensuring long-lasting banana boat protection. Plus, it's refillable. From sweat-resistant sport formula to kids' SPF 50+, this is sun care that'll come in handy when my kids are swimming, playing sports, when I'm hiking, when we're out at the lake, or whatever it is that we're doing outdoors. Shop Banana Boat 360 Mist at Walmart, Target, or Amazon. In every pair of Tacova's boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. Tacova's boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they're going to last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tacova store, where you're going to be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. So come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. Visit tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. And don't go gently, y'all. All right, this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth that no matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you. And how you manage them can really make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through things. Now, BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. BetterHelp.com. Thinking of popping the question? Diamonds Direct has an offer you can't miss. This month only, buy a natural diamond engagement ring of 1 carat plus and receive a free natural 1 carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. No one provides education, selection, and value like Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet from your friends at Diamonds Direct won't last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com.